Welcome, loyal listeners, to another installment of Manga Fights, as presented by Manga Mavericks here on AllComic.com. Once again, I, Colton, will be your MC for this edition of Manga Fights. And on this episode of Manga Fights, we will have two contestants debating over the recently ending Toriko in Weekly Shonen Jump, which ran from 2008 to 2016. Our first combatant is somewhat of a Shonen Jump enthusiast, even goes so far as to podcast about it on and off again through a show called Friendship Effort Victory, a very, in my personal opinion, uh, informative podcast about the inner workings of Weekly Shonen Jump, otherwise known as challenger Maxi Bernard, going up against two-time champion of Manga Fights, Sid, otherwise known as Lum Rabiasha, and your other host for Manga Mavericks. Now, I'm sure you're wondering where two combatants are, but... You know, we'll get to them in just a second. Before we do, let us give thanks for the manga fight we are about to receive. Thank you. And now, let us feast. This is our third installment of Manga Fights. The Toriko Edition. And now, before we get on to our actual manga fight, I think maybe we should just kind of sit down and uh, talk a little bit about how we all got into Toriko. Uh, Sid, would you like to start? Sure. So I got introduced to Toriko through the anime. When the anime started airing, I watched the first episode and I was interested in the series. This was the time when I was starting to get interested in more Shonen Jump series and wanted to check out like more stuff that was currently running. And so Toriko was a currently running series, you know, that I had heard about and the anime started airing. I wanted to check it out and I was interested in the concept of the series. It seemed really fun and really creative. I didn't really stick with the anime for a long time. I only got through the end of when they introduced the Battle Wolf and right before Regal Mammoth. But I jumped right into the manga around the same time. And the first chapter that I started, uh, jump, I just jumped right into was the introduction of the concept of the Nitro, the aftermath of the Metal Cola arc where Mansum is explaining the origins and history of the, of the Nitro to Toriko, Zebra, and Kamatsu. And I really didn't read the backlog of the series for quite some time. I just started reading the series from that chapter onwards, and I continued to do so for basically the rest of its run, uh, give or take some falling in and out of here and there like I did with most of the series I was keeping up with uh, back in high school days. But I would basically have kept up with the series since then, and Toriko was one of my favorite manga to read uh, week to week for quite a few years. 2012 through 2013, I would have called it my favorite manga of both of those years. Uh, first half of 2014, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then I would also say this year, 2016, it's probably my favorite thing I was reading all year. And so, yeah, I really love Toriko and I really enjoy the ride keeping up with it. And it's, I've had a great time with the series and I 
I'm looking forward to debating with Maxi on it today. And so, Maxi, what is your history with Toriko? Uh, so I started reading Trico, uh, basically as it came out in Japan. I've been reading, uh, illicitly online from about 2006 onwards, shameful as that is. And like 2008 was that, uh, sort of year where, uh, that sort of way of doing so, uh, became much more accessible and open due to sort of online reader sites. Again, despicable, but really useful if you're a teenager with low morals. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> which again, I, I'm ragging on them, but that's me ragging on myself more than anything. Uh, and like that, that was really just like this fascinating thing. It read like a, a modern version of a throwback. It, it felt like it, because it had muscles, it felt inextricably connected to uh to Fist of the North Star, to Cobra, to all these sort of late seventies, uh to mid eighties action series that had existed in Jump back when it was less about like teens being cool and more about uh men being really manly and ripping off one of the films popular in Hollywood at the time. And Trico definitely had a lot of that feel while still being like madly unique and interesting. And I I pretty much kept up with it uh weekly right up to the point where uh the the UK release of Shonen Jump started happening, which I think was with the issue that Jacko the Galactic Patrolman started coming out. So that would have been, what, 2012? Uh, mm, yeah. 2013, one or the other. And like that, and then I just kept powering through with that. It was almost always the absolute highlight of every issue of the, uh, the Viz Media Shonen Jump. And like, it, it had its occasional dips, but for the most part, I was there like, caught up in its story right up until the very end, almost without pause. Perhaps a bit of a pause when I uh, wasn't living in the UK, because uh, I left the country, and, and because I was travelling, didn't have access to regular internet. But, like, aside from that little thing, like, I, I've been with Tariko from the get-go. Nice. And how about you, Golden? Yeah, uh, so unlike the last manga fight where I knew nothing about what we were talking about, uh, I, I've actually, I've actually, I've actually read all of this. I've read all of Toriko. I was kind of with it on and off till I finally started reading it weekly, actually from the time skip. I think I've talked about this on the show before. I started buying the US Shonen Jump back in like 2006. I was still, um, I was just starting middle school then. Um, and, um, you know, I had bought it for a while, and then there was, like, a year where I just didn't buy it for some reason. I don't even remember why. It was probably because I was either – I was probably either spending all my money on One Piece and Naruto, and that's probably why I wasn't uh, – probably probably wasn't buying Shonen Jump back then. But I picked it back up in 2008 just, just because – um, because I hadn't read it in a while. And uh, that first issue I picked up back in, like, 2008 – what actually included the second chapter of Toriko it was like the second chapter out of like a three chapter preview uh they were doing in the magazine at the time so i first first thing my first exposure to Toriko was um Toriko's fight with the uh, Garara Gator which is probably still one of my favorite things in the entire series um uh, not just because it's cool but probably because of nostalgia honestly cuz i i really look back fondly on that and uh, from then on, like, you know, I bought like the first two volumes when they came out because I was really excited to to actually buy that from uh, from from my local borders when that existed at the time. And they were actually still in business. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, I I started catching up with it a few years later just so I could have something to read in the Viz Shonen Jump because 
if I if I didn't catch up with something, the only thing I would have had to read was One Piece, and I I I wanted to read more than One Piece, you know, while paying twenty five ninety something for uh, for a year subscription to Jump. And, you know, eventually I caught up with it, and the rest is history, really. So we've all been with Toriko for a really long time, and we all generally really enjoyed and loved the series. Yes. Uh, I know that Maxi and I disagree with Toriko on the po- on the time skip part, but uh, we we generally just really love Toriko, and we're all very passionate about it, and we're all very excited to be here today to debate it. All right. Um. So I think. With all that out of the way, I think we should just get on to our debate round. If you haven't listened to our previous manga fights, how our debate round will work, we'll, uh, we basically have five questions that I'm going to be asking the both of you, and uh, both of you are going to have a minute to basically start with your opening argument. Both of you will give about uh, three counter-arguments, and then the both of you will end with a um, with your closing arguments, so... All together, uh, that'll be about uh, five minutes each for the both of you. Uh, you'll both have a minute each to uh, state your arguments. So I think with all that out of the way, we should just get on to our first debate question. It is time for round one. So guys, our first question is, what is the best fight in Toriko? And I think we are going to give our guest here, our our challenger, Maxi, our first opening argument. Okay, a quick disclaimer before I start. I can't pronounce names. I've been criticized <laughs> about this for years. But that said... That's okay. None of us can do it great. That said, I will, I will do my best to argue for my corner. Uh, so, you ready to time me? Uh, yep, I am timing you right now. Okay, so without a doubt, the absolute best fight in Toriko history is between Midara and Ichiryu, uh, two characters who are like the big daddies of the comic, at least before the time skip. Although Midara keeps it up afterwards, just two big old beefy burly boys fighting on a giant floating rock, uh, using their ridiculous power-ups of eating anything that surrounds them, regardless of whether they're actually eating it, or uh, giant chopsticks. Kind of a weird power set when you think about it, but they make it really work like this sort of impacting fight of two people barely moving for the entire fight just and talking about their their past and the sadness they both have within them to do with throwies and each other like it is the definition of a tears in your eye manly fight between two old hands who just have decided to make their stand against each other and like everything that comes out of it including like the mass destruction of the world inflicted by Midoriya is like this long-lasting important impact that just changes the comic as a whole. All it's... right, time up. Ah, I did my best. All right, Sid, what do you think is the best fight in Toriko? Your time starts now. Nina says Ichiru is indeed a great fight, but I think if you ask any Toriko fan, well, just the general Tor- Toriko fan base, there is going to be just one answer that is high above the rest, and that is... Toriko versus Tommy Rod. This fight is genuinely legendary. Tommy Rod is this creepy as hell villain who Shimabukuro draws in just the most brilliant of exaggerated ways. And the fight Toriko has with him in Ice Hell is absolutely brutal. Tommy Rod has all these bugs attacking and ripping shreds of Toriko's flesh off of him. He, it pushes Toriko to his 
limit as, you know, not only does he have to deal with all these bugs, like, shredding him apart, he's, you know, freezing to that, too. And it's just an insane fight that is incredibly intense. And everyone, of course, remembers all right, the most... Do they remember? <laughs> uh, all right, Maxi, uh, your counter argument? My counter argument here is real simple. Tommy Rod is real cool. The fight is real good. But here's the thing. Have you read Hunter Hunter? I think you might have. You might have even watched <laughs> Hunter Hunter. And you know what Tommy Rod is? He's a chimera ant. He's not a Trico character. He's an ant from another series. He snuck in. Yoshihiro Tagashi, he was on hiatus and he said, you know what? Here, Mr. Toshishima Bakuro, why don't you take this off my hands? It's a chimera ant. Make him do weird bug stuff. And he went, sure, I will. And that's how the entire fight went. Sure, there's all this cool shivering stuff and this great thing about a giant icicle containing the sentry suit. But no, Hunter Hunter character as a villain. How weird. <laughs> that's actually my whole argument. <laughs> all right, uh, go ahead, Sid. Just because Tommy Rod is, in your opinion, quote-unquote, a Hunter Hunter character, doesn't mitigate the fact that the fight is just pure adrenaline, and just pure shock-full of memorable imagery, and just this intense action and battle. And the way Shimabukuro draws Tommy Rod, that is pure Shimabukuro. It is not Tagashi. Like, Tommy Rod is just, has just this amazing design, and just this amazing expressions, and you are in- intimidated by him and you are <laughs> grossed out, creeped out by him. Every expression is made with bugs coming out of his face. Those, like, those creepy eyes. Like, that re- weird bold cut he has. Like, Tommy Rod is just an insane villain. He's an incredibly memorable villain. But it's not the villain himself that makes the fight more memorable. It's just all the a- incredible action it has. I think that the most memorable moment in Toriko for most fans is the moment where Tommy Rod, like, Cops off Torco's hand, but Torco continues punching him with a bl- his bloody stump. All right, I have heard. Shit, that was quite. That was quite a good point at the end. All right, uh, Maxi, your counter argument. Okay, so here's the thing, right? You can argue for how great that is, how brilliant it is. It's intrinsically un-Tariko, because Tariko is a series about big, beefy daddies having big, manly fights that become amazing barra fan art down the line. And what's Tommy Rod? Tommy Rod's a waif. He's a bit too thin and gangly. He is Hosoka. He's not at all like that, but I'm sticking to my little hunter-hunter angle here. He's just, he's too wiry and gangly and weird. He's not nearly enough like a giant big boy. If he was a giant big boy like Midra, it'd be great. But he's not a big boy. He's a small boy. I like my boys big. <laughs> he he can't vomit up meteor spice into the air and destroy the whole planet and then do it again later in the series and fix the planet. That's ridiculous. Tommy Rod, he hasn't got a mouth big enough for it. It's terrible. He's not good enough. Um, all right. I don't know. Uh, Tommy Rod can fit, fit in this giant centipede monster in his yeah, body. No, I, I that was... said it, and I remember that his mouth stretches, and so I, I've, <laughs> I've kind of hoist myself on my own petard there, haven't I? Giant level seventy something monster that he spits out <laughs> at the end of the fight. But I think you're focusing way too much on. The comparison of Tommy Rod to Hunter Hunter characters and Oka. Like, I mean, I could compare Mitra and Ichiryu to Fist of the North Star characters. They're all muscly, you, you could try, burly but men. The but, problem there, right, is that 
Midra has loads of hair, and the characters in Fist of North Star, they only have a bit of hair. It's not the same. I don't same. know, Toki has a pretty rocking do. Uh, uh, perhaps, perhaps. Some <laughs> other characters also have pretty good hair, like Shin. Uh, it might it might sound like I'm not taking this argument very seriously. <laughs> what? Let, me, let me assure you, I will fight to the death. That's right. Tommy yeah. just isn't just like right. Torku and Tommy Rod were fighting almost to the death. Except but... they're both alive at the end of the series. Midara and Ishiryu, they're dead at the end of the series. They were devoted well, to it. They I committed. Tom- I don't know. I don't think we ever saw Tommy Rod survive at the end of the series. I think Joey may have actually killed him in Grimpatch, but that's a, an argument you can't for another kill Grimpatch, time. Though. He's the best character in the whole series. Well, <laughs> he has a giant straw. We don't see them at to the party at the end, so or who knows? But the point about the Toriko and Tommy Rod fight is that it's not just that the it's not just the villain is so iconic. I think in the minds of the fan base, but it's not only that. It's just that there's so many memorable scenes besides the st- Torko punching Tommy Rod with his stuff. You also got the moment where uh, Tommy Rod's bugs swarm all over Torko, and it looks and they flutter away, and it looks like he, Tor- Tommy Rod's bugs have eaten Torko, and that's how a chapter ends. And so you're like, oh my god, did what happened to Toriko? Did Tommy Rod really? Holy crap! But then you get this moment of awesome in the next chapter when you find out how Toriko escaped that, and then what really happened, and then you get and you continue with an, uh, the awesome fight and with Toriko luring Tommy Rod into his trap, and then punching Tommy Rod with his spike punch and it's sending him back flying. It's an amazing sequence. It's just an amazing part of that fight. Oh, all right. Um, all right. Let's 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 go ahead into closing arguments. Uh, Maxie, you first. Yeah, well, my closing argument here is purely in favor of my fight. It did something that had a much longer-lasting impact than nearly any other fight in the entire series. It delved into the uh, what was, at that point, the main villain of the series and gave him a depth and a history that we had previously not really had that much of an eye into. And it got rid of the sort of infallible big boss of the good guys because he had to be moved off the board for the characters to grow who were underneath him. And it did all that brilliantly. It led into the time skip, which, again, best period of Toriko. You can't fault it at all. It's perfect. Just mwah, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Sid, your closing argument? Toriko versus Tommy Rod also had an incredible impact on the series. It is like the equivalent of the Goku versus Risa fight in Dragon Ball Z, in the sense that it is inc- so incredibly iconic. When people think of Toriko, when at just normal people think about Toriko, this is probably the fight that they're most thinking of, because this is the most popular, this is the most renowned and memorable. It's the fight that in many ways defined Toriko as an action series. It's a fight that has lingered in Toriko's reputation to this day. It is just such a defining fight. It is full of just such amazing moments, incredible artwork, an incredibly unique and genuinely disturbing villain. It is just a pure blast to read beginning to end, a pure shot of adrenaline in the arm. It is 
your fight may be delicious, but my fight is tr- true gourmet greatness. All right, and I think that's a that's a good place to end it. It was a first round there, and I have to say, um, I, I honestly, and I hate to say this, Maxi, but I feel like Sid gave um, gave a few more convincing arguments than you did. I feel like uh, even Sid kind of pointed it out that um, I think you, I think you kind of spent a little too much time uh, kind of trashing the other fight and not really enough time trying to convince me uh, why your fight's better. I think I, I convinced myself it was too timeless. Uh, but, the, but the thing is, I, I have no regrets because Tommy Rod's a dumb name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will. Actually, I love Mira versus Itryu, actually. Like, that is actually up there as one of my favorite fights. But, like, I can't... I can, rereading the Torque versus Tommy Rod fight, I can't argue that fight is just so brilliant. Like, beginning to end. It just has so many great moments, such a great artwork. And I think that it's stuck in people's minds for a reason. It generally is, one, the one, I think, the pinnacle of the series' action. At least until the final battle between uh, with Acacia. That was another choice that I was considering, because I really enjoy that, too. But. I was going to say, the uh, the fight against Tommy Rod was uh, literally going to be my third pick. Uh <laughs> But for, for reasons about to become clear, there's a reason why I left the Neo fight uh, off the table as what would have been my top pick outside of Midera versus Ichiru. But honestly, yeah, I'm going to, I think I'm going to have to pick Sid as the winner of this round, not just because I honestly like, I, and I know this was, this is probably something that uh, people are going to get on me again when they listen to this and they're going to tell me I'm a horrible judge, but not only do I, I kind of agree with Sid's pick, but you know, if I didn't already agree with him, I would have said that I honestly think Sid made a better argument. No, he he did a much better job. Uh, but I'm just warming up. Sid's an old hand at this. I'm I'm a fresh baby boy, and I'm learning the ropes. <laughs> that's not uh, even a, that's not even an analogy. <laughs> Babies don't touch ropes. Uh, you, you hear that, Sig? You better watch out. He's coming for you. Um, so, <laughs> oh, sit, yeah? sit, sit. Well, ring your balls and twinkle your toes. I'm going to do the monkey dance with you. <laughs> Holy shit. All right. So, <laughs> I'm uh, sorry, I'm a but I'm engaged, disaster, Sid. I can't go with that. Swimming with ill will, just like Don Slime. Oh, all right. All right, guys. All right, guys. Calm down. Save, save the trash talk. Uh, Sid, Sid is the winner of this, uh, of our first round. And uh, I think with that, we're just going to move on to round two. So, guys, I want you both to tell me what you guys think is the best story arc in Toriko. And uh, with Sid being the winner of the last round, I think uh, he should go first. So, uh, Sid, go ahead first. uh, Your opening argument. I think the most common answer would be the Sentry Soup arc, and that is a very definitive arc for the series, but actually, I think the Regal Mammoth arc is possibly even better. Uh, the Regal Mammoth arc is an, it was really, I think, the first big arc in the series. It was when they were going after the Jewel Meat, and it was really the first, like, big appearance of the Bishokukai Gourmet Corp in the series. The first time Toriko ever fought with Star June. I think that it, I think that ultimately, I think this arc is 
I, I find this arc so great because it really balanced the supporting cast in an incredibly great way. Like, we got Toriko involved, we get Kamatsu involved, we got even Mansum and Rin are involved, and of course we have Sunny and Koku who are involved. Like, every character in this arc has a purpose, and it, they all play their role equally well. Like, no one feels left behind, no one feels unimportant. And right, I think that's a... Alright, uh, Maxi, your opening argument? The Regal Mammoth arc might be perfectly good, but I want to throw out here the absolute best arc of the series, the God arc. Which is where the series, after some meandering and weird jumping back and forth with time, decided to actually throw everything on the table, give every fight you could expect coming, deal with Neo, deal with Acacia, deal with what God is, which, as it turns out, was a frog with loads of balls on its back. <laughs> and who would have guessed that? Not like that. It had a moustache. I, I would not, I was so shocked at that. It was the biggest reveal in the whole series and it was bizarre as heck. And then like it went from that into like eating Kamasu and like having him have to prepare God from the inside whilst the, the most giant insane fight between Acacia, Toriko and just about every named character still alive in the series. Like, it was, it had stakes beyond anything you could possibly imagine. And whilst it didn't develop them, it delivered on the promise that each one of these characters had just by showing that they not only remained, but they mattered to the ultimate goal of the comic. All right, Sid, your, uh, your counter argument? The God arc was a lot of fun, but when I think about what I want on an arc, I want a really great balance of story, action, character development, and I want everyone to play a role, and I want to have a satisfying payoff to each of their role. I think a big problem I have with the God arc is really that so many characters really feel fell by the wayside and didn't really feel like they had an influence. The Four Kings, probably the most famously and disappointedly so, felt like such an afterthought in the final arc, where most of the attention was placed on really just Toriko and Nidara. And while those are great characters, and that was probably where the attention was most due, I did feel really disappointed that supporting cast got such the shaft. Whereas in the Regal Mammoth arc, this is an arc that employs the supporting cast to just great extent. We get the introduction of Mansum Rim and Sunny in this arc, and they all have great roles to play in this arc. They all act and contribute to the getting the jewel meat and to fighting against the Mishoku Kai. All right, we also time get up. Terry, who... Alright, uh, Maxi, your counter-argument? My biggest counter-argument here is that I can't actually remember anything about the Regal Mammoth arc. Like, it may have been one of the biggest opening stories, but it did not prey on the memory, like, at all. Uh, the things that Toriko accomplished afterwards, even after that initial open arc, just didn't compare. Whereas God, whilst it's fresh enough that I might be slightly biased, it managed to stick the landing on so many things, including, like, the fight between Starjun and Joey, like, that in particular, because it's not a story about the Four Kings anymore. It's become a story about, about two brothers who don't know their brothers facing off against peculiar enemies that turn out to be the body of their mother and also their dad combined with a weird creepy alien like it becomes a family story with the weird sort of adoptive father figure of sorts in Midara helping them out and ultimately protecting them from complete failure it's like it's a touching heartfelt angle that you're not really given elsewhere in the series outside of the flashbacks with Acacia which in turn is a nice mirror to what you actually 
uh, have there is that this new group of people, once the four kings are also there, like Trico and Stargen alone, uh, represent right, the up. next generation. All right, go ahead, Sid. But I think when you revisit the Regal Mammoth arc, uh, you can find out even more to appreciate with that benefit of hindsight and knowing the relationship between Torku and Starjune. It's an arc that has improved as age has gone on, and it's a little bit too early to really def- determine like the ultimate legacy of the God arc, or like how we're going to look back on it once in a few years' time. But with the Regal Mammoth arc, like, you can go back to that first fight between Torka and Starjun, and now, knowing that they're brothers, that fight has entirely new and awesome meaning to it. It's, it, 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 the fight was already incredible, but now that you have the context of what happens later on in the series, the events of that fight and just the arc as a whole are incredibly improved, and, Going back to just Torco as an overall series, like the Regal Mammoth arc doesn't just introduce, doesn't just develop some great characters. It has some fantastic monster designs. Like that plot of the arc is Torco fighting their. All right, Maxi, your counter argument. Ultimately, these, this comes down to two very different perspectives. It's either the benefit you get from uh, seeing the. Um, the pipe laid early on in the story and how it's transformed by later events, which is fine. That's often one of the best reasons for rereading something. Or whether you want to see the payoff to all that stuff that has been built up in the background over years. And whilst I'm one for enjoying seeing little details early on, like that actual revelatory moment where you get to go and see where everything was leading, get to see how much effort was put into delivering on this this ultimate climax. I mean, sure, there were a couple of chapters after the God Ark, but this is really the climax of the series, and it delivers on most bits of potential that are laid out. Not everything, because, frankly, Trico was, wasn't ending the way it could have. But it did still deliver on so many pieces of work that were laid out earlier in the story. Not least of which the true stuff to do with Acacia, to do with Air and the other beasts. Beast bin? No. The Eight Kings? No, not the Eight Kings. My brain's fired itself a little bit here. The Neo. Is that right? Oh. No, Neo? Yeah, Neo. No. How? Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the plan of Acacia and Air and another and all the other weird little bird-faced people to deal with, um, to deal with Neo. And that's neat. Alright. Oh, I, uh... I buggered that up there, didn't I? <laughs> that's bad because I completely forgot what the species of the bird-faced people uh, are. Nitro. Nitro. Good God. That, oh. I have a piece of paper with everything's names on it. I still forgot that. <laughs> um, all right, Sid, uh, your counter argument. I think that the Regal Mammoth arc captures everything that's awesome about Toriko, not just from the action and characterization and development, but also in terms of its creativity. Like, the setting of the Regal Mammoth arc is a lot of fun because Toriko and co. have to travel through these crazy locations in order to find the Regal Mammoth. Like, this cavernous mountain, these woods. Like, it's a real trip. And not only that, but there's just some fantastic monster designs in this arc that get introduced. Like, 
The Ulbasaurus is a lot of fun and has this great gag where Tor, where it's, you know, obeys its mass, who, the master, whoever it thinks it's strongest. So first it, so first after Torko beats it up and it's being him, then after Starchin be, beats it up, it obeys him, and then after Terry beats it up, it, it becomes, it, it, it starts to obey it, and then that's who it, uh, follows for the rest of the series. Ulbasaurus is great, but, uh, and right. besides uh, Ulbasaurus, you get Ruban. Honda, who's creepy as fuck, but yeah, uh, just some great monster designs in this arc. Hey, I said time up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Max, I think, that, I think that's a DQ. Uh, my final argument. Okay, let's see. No, this is, this is your counter argument. Uh, have, I, have I still got another counter argument? Uh, just just one more. Just one more. Yep. Oh. I'm not sure if I've got much in the way more to go and say in the way of counter arguments. You've given a very convincing case for an early story that I had previously dismissed. But I think ultimately what it comes down to for me is that whilst it is full of ideas, full of interesting monster designs, uh, what God as an arc presents is uh, a, a culmination of ideas. It's the point where Shima Bukuro, he's learned how to present so many ideas and in single chapters, no matter how wordy it gets, it's still relatively accessible, even if it does start going a bit high concept at times, and manages to actually, like, just be the pure id of the author, just saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And whereas earlier storylines had kind of failed to deliver on this properly, God had actually managed to turn around and say, okay, that's the stuff that didn't work in another, because we weren't really focused enough and we skipped ahead and stuff. Uh, Here is... Here is that sort of story, but done correctly and in the true style of a battle manga. It's real good. All right, uh, we're going to go on to our closing arguments. Sid, you first. While the God arc was a very strong conclusion to the series, there are some things that I can point at and say, you know, I think they could have ironed out the pacing of this moment a little bit here. I wish they could have shown us some of this stuff. Like, I would have liked to see in Starjun talking about a green patch versus the previous head chefs of the Bishoku Kai. I would have liked to see actually see the, uh, the Heavenly Kings fight Joey, even if they lost. I would like to actually to see them fight in that arc. I would have, there were things that I can point to in that arc that I do think could have been improved on. But when I look back at the Regal Mammoth arc, I just am so totally impressed by just how well put together it is and how everything just feels in place. I'm left with no, like, wants or wishes from that arc. I'm perfectly satisfied by how it develops and just everything that Shimabukuro puts into it. It is the first big arc of Toriko, and it delivers everything you want in a Torco arc, and quite frankly, I don't think any arc after it quite delivers it, delivers or captures the spirit and everything that's great about the series All right, quite as strongly. Alright, uh, Maxi, your closing argument. The Regal Mammoth, as an arc, shows the youthful optimism of a series finding its legs and believing it can give hints towards everything, deliver on them, and provide a satisfying story with potential for the future. What you get from the God arc is the realism of adulthood saying, this is where we are, this is what we need to do to tell you a competent story that finishes the story out in a way that will affect you both emotionally and just excite you to your core. And it might not have the the exuberance of the regal mammoth, 
but it knew exactly what it needed to do to be the best arc in Tariko. Also, God was a giant frog. <laughs> I can't say that enough. You like it's bizarre and brilliant. Regal Mammoth is just a mammoth who's a king. But royalty style. Regal. It's not All right. right. Alright. Uh I guess if that's it, then uh I guess our, our our second round is over, and um, I think Maxie said it himself. I think this uh, this comes down to a matter of perspective, which you guys were arguing about. Uh, you know what you really value in an arc of uh, of really any of any story, really. And I don't know. I feel like again, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure people listening aren't going to agree with my uh, perspective here again, uh, but. Um, I feel like I'm I'm kind of inclined to ingr- to agree with Sid, and it's not just because. And uh, I should probably put this on the record. I am uh, I'm not the biggest fan of the Toriko time skip overall, but but it's not it's not really because of that that I'm going with Sid. I feel like I'm gonna have to go with Sid on this round just because I I sort of agree with him on what uh, on what the Regal Mammoth arc in comparison to the God arc had to offer. I mean, overall, sure. God was a, I thought was a fine conclusion, though I also agree with, I also kind of agree with Sid that, like, maybe it could have been a little bit more than what it was, but I feel like I agree with Sid, like, especially, uh, like, say, on the, uh, on the point of, uh, uh, the four kings being so involved in, like, how, uh, just really in how involved they were with the story and how, like, they actually, they all had their time to shine, I mean, granted, you know, Zebra wasn't introduced in the story yet, but you know, with what with what of the four kings we had at the time, I I still think that uh, I agree with Sid that like you know characters like Coco and Sunny had uh, had a lot of time to shine, and you know even side characters like Mansa and Rin even had uh, even had some uh, involvement there in the arc. Whereas in the God arc, I also agree that uh, they were very heavily sidelined, and I was not a fan of that at all that's probably i think one of the biggest sins of the time skip in my opinion so again this is truth i I was willing to concede the argument at the point i forgot what the nitro recalled because that was shameful (laughs) (laughs) i I lost on that ground like my brain completely skipped and i just lost all pace so so really based on the fact that i kind of agree with sid's argument a little bit more i i am gonna have to declare him the winner of this round I'm I'm happy handing it over to him just to check. So, uh, so the regal mouth that that literally has the whole thing where like Trico gets punched through and only really survives because he gets to put the jaw meat in his mouth. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, so I finally remembered it. So I'm 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 okay with losing that one because that, <laughs> I, that was a good moment. I will say that I do agree with a popular opinion that Sentry Soup was probably the best arc, but I think Regal Mammoth is just incredibly underrated. It's definitely like up there in my top three favorite I, I arcs feel like, from the series. I feel like on a very real level, if we were being completely honest with a lot of these arguments we're gonna have, Century Soup would probably be what we both argue for in most sections. Yeah. Like, cause you can fit it into a lot of these arguments we're gonna make. Yeah, and especially since I just argued Toriko versus Tommy Rod for best fight, I didn't want to argue a Sentry Soup thing again for best arc, so I wanted to do something different, and I wanted to choose Regal Mammoth just because I think it's so overlooked because Sentry Soup comes after it, but Regal Mammoth really, in some respects, it does capture the best of Toriko even better, even if what Sentry Soup does for the series ultimately puts that higher in my book. 
Yeah, honestly, like, I kind of have to agree, too, that Sentry Soup is, I think, is probably, I think, personally, I think the peak of Toriko. Like, I don't think, I hate to say this, I don't think Toriko really gets any better than that. Not that I think that the rest of the series is bad, but, like... I think Cooking Festival is pretty close, that's probably my second Yeah, yeah, Cooking Festival is close, but, like, I think if I had to, I just kind of on off tangent here, if I had to rank my arcs, like my top three, Sentry Soup would probably be my first favorite. Cooking Festival would probably be my second, and then Regal Mammoth would easily be third, at least. Yeah, that's basically how I order them too. But um, I think we should uh, move on to round three. All right, guys. Uh, as we as we all know, um, there are some pretty awesome uh, monster designs in Toriko. Uh, a lot of them uh, fans submitted, which is which is pretty cool. So I want you guys to tell me what you guys think the best beast slash monster design is in all of the series. Uh, your opening argument, Sid? There's so many great designs in Torco. It really is kind of hard to choose. But if I have to go for a character design for a, for like a beast animal creature that I just absolutely loved the first time I saw it. It has to be Bambina, the Monkey King. Like, Monkey King Bambina just has this great, really wonderful design on him. Like, he has so much personality. I, I, he had, with, I I just love his goofy face and grin, his, like, purple lips, his, and his, you know, hair that's all over the place. I just, uh, in terms of a fun, memorable design, I just think Bandina was one that really struck me the first time I saw it, and I think it's a large part on why I love that character so much. Alright, Maxi, your opening argument? Now, the Monkey King Bambina was going to be my choice as well, but that's fine, because I'm going to go and tell you guys (laughs) about Terry. Okay. Terry might not be a monkey, but what we have here is the quintessential sidekick animal design. It's so sleek and simple. It's just Terry is a wolf that, as it grows, becomes an even bigger wolf. Like, not just that, but within the visual representation, it is clearly out of place within the starting world of Trico, within the human world, because it is essentially one of the offspring of Guinness. Is it Guinness? The giant, the biggest wolf of them all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... I think that in itself is kind of notable because it gives you this promise of like Terry is part of this insanely powerful line of animals who as like by being alongside Trico and growing properly without being dependent as as the BB corner truly tried to prove Terry has to be her own creature still has the potential to grow and be like this ridiculously powerful animal and whilst I will admit it's not truly delivered on because uh, all the animal assistance to the gourmet hunters like don't really go where you want to just the true potential behind terry and just the the simplicity and brilliance of the design of just this bloodthirsty wolf is frankly better than anything else in the series all right it's iconic all right uh sid your counter argument i do like terry's character arc and role in the series but his design is pretty simple, and it's good kind of simple, but it's not quite as distinct and just outright memorable as Monkey King Bambina. Like, Bambina's design 
just allow Shinobu Girl to do so many great expressions with his character. I think one of the great parts about Bambina is just how expressive he is. He makes so many goofy faces, so many, like, childlike, enthusiastic faces. He can be really funny and really intimidating, like, on the drop of a hat. Like, he has such a, and it's such a great design to be able to allow you to do that. And it tells you a lot about his character, too. You know, just looking at his goofy face, you can tell that he's playful, but you look at the scars on his body, you can tell that, you know, this is a guy that has been through a lot of battles and can, is probably a pretty tough foe. Like, there's, it, a good design should tell you a lot about a character when you just look at him once. And I think Bambina's design really does that. Whereas with Terry, you look at him and you really just see a wolf at first glance. Alright, uh, Maxi, your counter-argument. You're making a mistake of assuming that simplicity is in itself a negative trait compared to complexity. The problem that Bambina the Monkey King actually has as a character is the same sort of problem that 90s comics in the West had. Too many lines and too many details make for a character that is incredibly difficult to look at. And if you combine that with the concept of the silhouette test, what you get, rather than a clear, distinct form of a humanoid creature, is just a mountain of spikes with fists at the end. And that's not good design. And the fact that, you know, Bambina changes form, you think, oh, that would be great. It would be simpler. And it has less lines. It does. But it's also grotesque. It's like a naked mole rat with a weird little chippy face <laughs> on it. It's not right. Whereas Terry, just through the sheer simplicity of being this basic wolf shape, and yes, just being a wolf, but a really big and awesome wolf in the tradition of the sort of things you'd end up seeing in the Final Fantasy games. Just these big, spiky, vicious, beastly things with powerful legs and a big old tail. Like, it makes for a creature that's instantly recognisable. You know what Terry's about. It's a drawling wolf. It's going to eat someone. You look at Bambini, you go, I don't know if he wants to dance with me, mate with me, or just be a scribble on a page. It's difficult. All right. And I do like Bambina. All right. Uh, Sid, counter-argument. I think Bambina's uh, second form is supposed to be grotesque and unsettling. When it happens, when it first appears in the series, it freaks everyone out. Like, it's supposed to be, like, kind of a scary thing. So I think it does its job uh, at, in that respect. Now, I don't mean to s suggest that t Terry's design is lesser in its simplicity. I do agree that simple designs are very good, but I don't think Bambina fails the Shittlewet test at all. In fact, I think he passes it with flying colors, and so does Terry, but the thing I have with Terry is that it doesn't feel as distinct a design as Bambina's. It like, when I see Bambina, I can immediately, I immediately know that's a Shimabukuro character. That is a Toriko character. But you could prob, you can probably show any random Joe, like a picture of Terry and then maybe a wolf from some other anime, like Princess Mononoke, and they might confuse the two as from being from the same series. Terry has a good design, but it doesn't ha have just that distinct flavor for it, that just unique quality that I think Bambina has as a whole. All right, time up. Maxi, your counter-argument. If anything, being recognizable as being a design on the same sort of level as the wolf from Princess Mononoke is a giant plus, because it means to your basic average reader who may have never read Tariko before, who may not know who Terry is, like mid-series, they see this wolf and they go, it's a big, powerful wolf. It's really straightforward. It's really simple. It's got so much going for it on that sort of level. 
Whereas the, the, the Monkey King, he's, he's fantastic, but I mean, let's talk about Terrian tropes. The centaur, the liger, species that shouldn't crossbreed. The Monkey King goes off and mates with Zonger after his gender changes <laughs> from eating the testicles of the Monkey King. I'm not what? saying that that's morally wrong and that we should discard the character as such, but I think we have to remember when it comes to these things, you have to be aware of the questionable content related to a character. And frankly, I don't think Zonga wanted to sleep with the Monkey King, and that's a real worry. I, I think it's dark, <laughs> it's sinister, and it's horrific. Terry, Terry, if Terry sleeps with anything, it's probably another wolf. And that's as God intended. And God's a frog. <laughs> or Obasaurus. They're pretty buddy-buddy. But uh, oh, yeah. no, I, I don't... We're not judging the characters. We're just judging the designs. So... Uh, I don't well, think I, I, I believe the argument was just best beast. No, but it was best beast monster design in Torica. Ah, uh, did it have design in it as well? Wait, in that case, I'll say this: it was not God's design for a monkey to lay with a human with, <laughs> with a beard and brush. That's that's not that's the wrong sort uh, of design. All right, guys, we're, we're we're getting into a completely different argument. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, <laughs> I'm going to fight for this one as hard as I can because I've had I've had to go with my second choice. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, Okay, um, I, I think it's time for closing arguments. Go ahead, Sid. Overall, Bambina was a design that stood out to me when I first saw it. I think that when you look at the character, you, just anyone, if you show it, you will attract a lot of attention because it has such a distinct, he has such a distinct design. You, and you can tell a lot about his character from his face, from his body, from his balls. I mean, it's just <laughs> such a, it's just such a unique design. It's such a memorable design. I think that it contributes a large part as to why so many people love that character, myself included, you guys included. Bambina is just, out of the Eight Kings, has the best design out of all the characters in Dorco. He has the best design. I want a Bambina spinoff. And it's not just because of his personality, but because, dang, that character is such a great design perfect for action and comedy alike all right uh maxi your counter uh, your uh your closing argument i want you to think of sadaharu <laughs> i want you to think of the weird penguin creature from yu hacker show i want you to think Who? of oolong i want you to think of yakko from Majin tante nogami nuro every strange weird little animal assistant the main character has is intrinsic to how the series work and terry is no different without terry there would be no tariko because terry sounds a bit like the tree part of tariko <laughs> so you just have Poe. <laughs> Uh, but genuinely, uh, the iconic importance of the animal assistant characters in Shona Manga cannot be understated, and Terry performs that job admirably, even when being sidelined frequently by the various arcs in the series. Um, alright. Uh, well, I'm not gonna lie, this is kind of tough, and I... It's kind of tough for me because I feel like our uh, our argument went to a lot of different places and wasn't entirely focused. Um, I will have to admit, and, and and I won't even lie. Like I I love Bambina too. He's probably like my favorite of all of the eight kings. But that's also probably because we got to spend the most time with him. I'll be completely honest. Um, hmm. But he, even so, I, I, at first I Sid's opening argument wasn't really pulling me in because Sid's argument was literally like. I, I think one of Sid's arguments at one point was he has hair, 
And I'm like, okay, sure, I guess. <laughs> uh, pointing out all these uh, different facets of, of his design. It wasn't really pulling me in at first. And I, I, Maxi almost had me with, um, with, uh, um, with the, I guess with the argument about how uh, simple the design was and how it works. But basically, you, you both, of, both of you guys brought up some good points, but I think, like I said in the end, the, the debate for this topic overall was a, was, was slightly unfocused. Uh, I think both of you are a little guilty of, uh, kind of focusing a little too much on character more than design. But with that being said, I have to agree with, um, with Sid about his point, uh, he brought up earlier about how a character's design should be telling of, of the character in a way. And a good character design tells you a lot about the character on its first sighting, on its first viewing. And, um, with that being said, I, I feel like I kind of have to go with Sid on this one again. I have no problem with losing this one because as I said, and I'm sure we can all agree, because I, I was going to go with Bambina as well. Like, the Monkey King is 100% the best animal in the entire series. <laughs> like, I, I don't question that at all. But I figured, you know, I'd try my best to not just concede immediately and give an argument for another choice. Hey, if it makes you feel any better, I, I did a lot of that in the first manga fight anyway, so you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't have been the first one. <laughs> um, but I think uh, with all that being said, I think we should move on to round four. You guys, you watch me, by the way. We hit the speed round. That's where I, that, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for that. This is just, this is nothing. This is pennies. I'm giving these to Sid. <laughs> oh. Interesting. Well, so you make a comeback then. <laughs> this is going to be the first manga fight where uh, one person wins every round. You watch. But you know, Maxi, humans say there's always tomorrow and the sun will always rise, but it's not going to come forever. Do, do you still have these quotes up? Yes, I do. <laughs> Okay, I, okay I, I want this on record. Sid has a, an actual list of quotes from Toriko. I think that should uh, I think that should say how much he really enjoys the series. Really, what? How can I? How can I hope to compete except win this? <laughs> the next round where I will win. I, I was I was gonna say, are, are you conceding victory to Sid? No, no, because the thing is, right? Is even when I lose, I secretly win. <laughs> so ah. it's fine. Okay, I I didn't it's, know that's it's how like debates work. Minority worked. world, you're reversing the out, you're reversing what happens. It's just the power of going into denial. <laughs> ah, that is that is pretty powerful. I can't deny that. I mean, it, it works for all those fans of Bleach on Shonen Jump's <laughs> Facebook page. It can work for me. <laughs> okay, um, we should move on to round four. Uh, I want you both to tell me what you think the most memorable moment in Toriko overall is. Um, Sid, again, you won the last round, so you get to go first. What's your opening argument? To me, the most satisfying, most memorable moment in the series is when the final chapter, uh, the second to last chapter, where everyone is gathered to eat uh, Toriko's full course, finally, and we get, you know, all these, all the returning characters, all reminiscing about their adventures, but the specific moment that I'm choosing is from the end of that chapter. Uh, the most perfect, cathartic moment in the entire series, and that's Midera's spirit returning to, and to, and, and you know, intending Toriko's full-course banquet, and he sees 
a table in the far off distance, and gathered around that table is his family, and his mother figure froze. And she tells him, Come come eat with us, Mitra. And you see Mitra's face, and he just tears up, and then you see him like age back to like when he was a child, because deep down that's what Mitra really was. He was still just a child. And he goes off and he says, Yeah, and finally Mitra's full course dream happens. He gets to have a meal with his family again around the dining table. And it's just such a satisfying, such a beautiful moment that is right, always going to stick with me from here on out. Alright, Maxi, opening argument. That is a very beautiful moment, but I'm not interested in beautiful moments. I'm after the most memorable moment. And there has been one that has haunted me for years, and it's Trico's only real proper dabbling with horror. And that's to do with our character Tepe, who, in a sequence, you'll forgive me if I get some of the details wrong, I believe it was during, like, the sort of gourmet chef tournament thing. Uh, he gets messed with by Joey, which is to say he ends up in a strange sequence where he is beheaded and presented on a platter. And that was so out of left field, so utterly horrifying and disturbing, to say nothing of his seeming recovery afterwards, but with a mysterious scar on his neck. That, like, that haunted me for weeks. It was actual quality horror content in a series that is more about action and comedy and weird goofs than actually trying to explore anything dark. And that it continued to go dark from there, but that's not really relevant to the individual moment. Just this moment of Tepe's head on a platter is one of the most horrific things I have ever seen in a in a Shonen Jump comic. And it's it's remarkably bloodless as well. Like it's so unnerving. I I just I can't say it enough. Alright. Te- Tepe gets to have a unique moment. <laughs> Counter argument said. Tepe's head in a fruit bowl is indeed an incredible image. It is a memorable image for sure, but compared to some of the series' most emotionally affecting moments, I don't think it's nearly as memorable. To me, when I close my eyes and I think about Toriko now, the first images to come to my mind are like some of the most powerful emotional moments. They tend to involve Mitra because Mitra, quite frankly, has the most emotional and most cathartic and satisfying character arc in the series, and the payoff to that character arc in the penultimate chapter, those images seeing Mitra de-aged into a child, seeing that image of him running off to join his family at the table, that, to me, is just so, so powerful. And that is why it's so memorable to me. And I think that just, in the long run, that is a moment that you'll keep coming back to and thinking about. All right, time up. Uh, Maxi, counter-argument, go. I'm not going to lie, the main reason why I just can't see this moment with Midra as being the most memorable is the ubiquity of these heartstring-pulling moments within the series, like, where it's constantly trying to make you feel sort of, you know, happy tears and, oh, my my heart, it's aching. And they're, they're all fantastic moments, but there's so many of them, and they don't stick in my mind as much simply because there's too many. It's the... It's the strange, solemn uniqueness of the moment with Tepe's uh, beheading that just completely jars me because there's nothing to compare it to within the rest of Toriko. Because it stands completely alone, it really does just prey on the memory. 
like entirely it's it's almost unreasonable how memorable it is because of its its lack of peers within the eight and a half year run of the comic all right uh sid counter argument i don't think that the horror, horrifying moments of Torco are any less ubiquitous than the sentimental moments. In fact, Torco has a lot of horror moments. Like, you can go back into the Tommy Rod fight and, and where Torco's body has seemingly been ripped to shreds and eaten up by bugs. You can go to the Monkey King arc where, you know, Sonny opens his eyes and he sees the bodies of his friends in this horribly bloodied, mangled scene and he just screams out in, all, in just horrifying shock and horror. And even in earlier during the, uh, even earlier uh, during that point in the, in those post time skip, part is you get stuff like Torco being split in half by the Horse King's breath. You get, like, Torco and Coco seemingly, like, dehydrated by food spirits before they enter, you know, the Hex Food world. Uh, you know, horror moments happen in Torco pretty frequently, just as much as the sentimental. Alright, so, time up. Uh, go ahead, Maxi, your counter-argument. I would argue here that there's a sort of weird equating of what would be a scary moment in an action scene and actual tense thriller level horror. Because whilst, yes, there are these moments of, like, frank gore or, or loss and terror during the fights, they're all in the framing of an action series of people fighting against monsters and against each other. The thing that makes the Tepe uh, moment so memorable is the fact that there's none of that. Like, it's, it's mind meddling on the level of Chris Claremont uh, and his uncanny X-Men run. It, it's the adjusting of a human being for a traumatic experience that is so out of framing with the action antics associated with the main series that it is up there with one of the most historically relevant comic books in the Western world, whilst also still being a unique creation of Eastern comics. And that's, that's a global impact its own way from what is surely just an incredibly small moment that only takes up a few pages over the course of, what, two chapters? That's phenomenal. That is the sort of thing that should be written about in detailed essays. It won't, because not many people are going to write detailed essays about Tariko, but if there was any justice in the world, then that would be the moment they pick on. All right, time up. Uh, Sid, your counter-argument. I don't think that just because the moment feels out of place. It feels like jarring. It definitely does when it happens. And that contrast is good for sure when it happens. But I don't think that alone is enough to make it the most memorable moment in the series. I think that ultimately when you reflect upon Toriko, reflect upon the journey, I think the events in that final chapter, in, well, second to final chapter, encapsulate the most encapsulate kind of those memories and kind of everything you love about Toriko, and specifically the closing of that chapter, that sequence with Midera, to me that is like the emotional peak of the series. That is like the biggest emotional payoff to the entire thing, and that's what makes it so memorable to me. That's why it's stuck with me weeks after I've read it, and I just can't stop thinking about that moment. Like, that chapter, that those final pages... 
they really are emotionally powerful and affecting. And I think that sticks in my mind and heart more than that one image, which while cool and while very, very disturbing, doesn't have an, as much going beyond that, I feel. All right, time up. Uh, Maxi, your counter argument. I feel like here this is, again, it's a question of two very different sorts of things for what you classify as memorable. And whilst uh, the final moment for Midoriya as a spirit is, frankly, one of the most emotional moments in the entire series, I, I think it just, it's not had the time to breathe yet to see whether it's truly memorable. It is at this point, what, a month old at most. It's not had the time we need to truly understand its relevance. And it could be one day. But the facts that I'm preying upon a scene from many years ago now, from around volume 30 of the series, if not a bit before that, like just before the time skip, like it's, it speaks to the quality of the moment. It speaks to, its impact speaks to the experimentation there. Not just that, but it, it's Shimabukuro doing what he's really known for post-time skip beforehand. It's him firing a rapid fire idea off, just something that's completely unrelated to what he's doing before and turning it into a, a scene, an exploration of an idea. And that's that's so incredibly true to the author's greatest skills that it's just fantastic. I love every single aspect of it. And and it's just... It, I like Tepe too. That's really it. Right? All right. Not much more to say to that. It's a very short moment, so All right. I've not got a lot to work with. <laughs> All right. Uh, closing arguments. Sid, you first. Basically, I th- Mac. The, while Mac, to you, do make a good point about to- the my moment being only a few weeks old. I think that when you look at just general fan reaction to it, even from people who really weren't into the ending, the final years of the series, like it, people were really genuinely affected by that moment. They felt the emotion in that scene. They felt for Meter as a character, and they felt for that chapter. They felt for the ending of that chapter. I think that speaks to the power of the moment and how it will, and the legacy it'll leave as years go by. That moment is so strong that even people who were disinterested or dispassionate about Torque in his final years felt genuine emotion and emotional catharsis during that scene. I think that speaks to its power. All right. Uh, Maxi, your closing argument. I think there's something in common here between the two moments because this, this cliffhanger with Tepe, it had that exact same moment. Uh, it was approaching a time that people were losing interest in Trico big time. It had to revitalize itself. And yet here in this moment before, on a, a really peculiar cliffhanger, suddenly everyone was talking about Tariko again. It had captured everyone's interest during a time when it frankly could have wrapped itself up with that very storyline. But through the single moment, everyone was on board again. They were like, oh my god, what's Trico doing? What's happening next? What could this possibly mean? And that's a discussion that had been completely absent from the series surrounding it. And just in this one single moment... It pulled everyone back and said, look at this side character, look what we've done to him, what's happening next? And that's that's always powerful, that always touches you right inside, but not through your neck, because that's how you end up in a fruit platter. 
Well, I know we've already said our closing arguments, but it's worth pointing out that that moment with Tepe happens before the cooking festival arc happens. So, oh, I, I told you I'd misremember a detail. Yeah, it happens at the end of the four beast arc, and the pop the fan reaction to that arc was pretty positive. People were very into it. I remember the reaction. People were positive about the four beast arc. Yeah, you were interacting. See, with? it's funny because well, in my circle, people were pretty into it. Oh. Oh yeah, your your circle. I wouldn't know them. They're from Canada. I've I, I well, I, I was in Minnesota. I guess that's sort of like Canada, except it's in the United States. <laughs> well, Minnesota, I definitely know for sure, is always cold. Um, yeah, and we, you guys do get Say a lot that of snow again. There. Um, yeah, just just kind of just kind of off the record here, as someone who has read all of Toriko and does generally enjoy it, I I did not like the Four Beast arc. I thought it was kind of a uh, it just, I don't know. I just didn't think it was very super interesting, honestly. I, I seem to recall it having a massive, like, drop of interest around this time, but I might be wrong. Well, see, I don't know, because I, I know there are, I know there are people, I, honestly, I, I feel like more people dislike that arc than actually like it. Because I know other people who do not like that arc. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I guess. So, how, how far off base was I here? Because I, I feel like if it, you know, if it happened at the end of the four B start, like, did the four B start then lead directly into the? Yeah, the I'm, pretty, I'm pretty like, sure. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, so you know, my, my brain was in the right zone. It was just making a couple of mistakes. <laughs> um, but okay, so debate is over, and uh, I really have to give it to Maxi because, like, personally, I. I had completely forgotten about that moment, so I don't know if that should really tell you who the winner is here or not, but um <laughs> but I do think he brought up a lot of good points and I think that it is genuinely a very good moment cuz I I I can't deny that it did it did inspire a lot of discussion at the time like a lot of people were genuinely shocked by it and it was a great cliffhanger to that particular chapter. But um, I do have to kind of give it to Sid because I think, yeah, while I do agree, yeah, it's probably too early at this point to say that Midora's uh, cathartic emotional ending to his character arc is, you know, memorable because, I mean, it's it's still very fresh in our minds. I like to think that about a year or two from now, I'm still, personally, I'm still going to remember that moment. And I think that counts for something. So... I, I am going to have to give it to Sid. See, I, I thought I had a trick in aiming for a pre-time skip part. I thought that was how I got you. <laughs> oh, um, I, I actually, I'm surprised neither of you went with um, that that kind of uh, that mind fuckery that uh, Shimabukuro had us go through, where where Bambina had supposedly killed off all of the all of the kings except for Sunny. I thought, uh, honestly, I probably would have remembered that moment uh, a little quicker than. Uh, than uh, Tepe's cliffhanger from before the time skip, honestly. I did consider it, but I feel like the moment ran a little too wide to count as a single moment in my mind. And also, it, it does just come down to the fact that, like, with this weird thing of Tepe getting beheaded metaphorically, but also possibly physically, that, like, it, it it's weird how much it's stuck in my mind, and it might just be me, but, like... No, I mean, it's... I, know, I think it's, it's a really memorable moment, too, but my choice is... So the ones did they I was do it cons- in the anime. I don't. I didn't. I don't know if they did. I didn't watch that far. In the I can't anime. imagine they did. But I only just realized that I didn't even think about that. <laughs> but uh, the moments I were thinking of were most were more like sentimental, just because I'm a sentimentalist. 
So, I mean, I was, th- so, if I was, basically the two moments that I was debating back and forth on were that, was that, like, final sequence in motor meter at the, at the end of the penultimate chapter. And, uh, my second choice was Mitra's, well, Mitra telling Joey his full course meal as he's defeating her, which I thought, which I thought was just another amazing moment. Yeah, that is pretty like, good. Yeah, that, that would have, that would have been a good one. Honestly, if you'd have gone out, I probably would have just completely stopped <laughs> there. <laughs> um, yeah. So honestly, I kind of wish I did debate that one, but yeah. both are just amazing moments to me. And chapter, the second to last chapter of Dorco is probably one of my favorite manga chapters of all time now. And my favorite, one of my favorite manga endings of all time now. So I, I, I know it, kind I know of go it's with not that. one of our arguments, but I just want to throw this out here. Is Midra the best character in Chirico? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure he is. <laughs> like that that's such a weird thing to consider, but man. he's probably arguably the most developed. Definitely. And it's so sad. Oh, yeah. I think it's so sad. for me it's so satisfying that I think everyone now seems to agree about that. But because before I felt kinda alone in loving Midra so much, like back during the cooking festival, but now everyone seems to be like, Yeah, Midra, he's the best character in Toriko. I love that guy. So that makes me very happy as a longtime Midra supporter. It helps that he just has an excellent design both when he's young and when he's old. It's just like really impacting mm-hmm. most definitely and yeah. of course his character arc is just great so there you go see this is how i'm making up for losing the arguments is i'm just bringing out things that we can agree on <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right friendship wins. all right so that is the end of round four uh, uh sid has won that round we are gonna go into round five uh so for round five i uh i think we should make round five a little more interesting oh just just to get out of the way, round five is uh, basically where Maxi and Sid would have argued whether Toriko diminishes in quality after the time skip. And I'm going to be completely honest here, guys. I'm just going to pull back the curtain. I uh, n- not neither of these guys really think so. Yeah. They both like the time <laughs> skip. I I think I have gone on record many times on other podcasts and and on twitter saying that i i think the time skip it overall is not very good so what i think we should do here is i'm i'm the judge and i think i'm gonna change up the rules here a little bit i'm gonna make things interesting so i think what i want to happen here is i want both maxi and sid the team up and i want them to argue with me about the quality of the time skip of toriko and then if we win, do we wait? Then who judges well, the, the fight? I, well, I, that's that's the best thing. You ha- you're gonna have to fight against the judge, so it's 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 already it's already <laughs> super biased. If 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 even one of these guys can convince me that the time skip is good, I will I will officially declare a tie for uh, for, for for the debate round. Okay, sounds good to me. All right, so we're going to start this uh, very unprecedented uh, uh, formatted round. Uh, round five of the debate. Did Toriko diminish in quality after the time skip? We shall see. But to be fair, I think I want to give Maxi a little bit of a break. I want I want him to start off because I know I know Maxi in particular is pretty passionate about the time skip. So, Maxi, I want your opening argument. I'll do my best. 
Okay, so the thing about the post-time skip is that it develops everything more and in greater ways whilst introducing new concepts beyond anything that had happened in the first 30 volumes of the series. Uh, I mean, your main modes of transport are giant animals you can ride in. Who doesn't like a melon octopus or a shark that's also a train? It introduces Bambina, which we have proven scientifically in this podcast <laughs> as the best designed creature in the entire series. It, it develops a meteor further who had already had a little bit of work done beforehand, but it transformed him from the interesting villain to just outright the best character in the entire series. It had a concept for everything. Every new scene gave you something more to deal with. It took the like the breakout character of the last pre-time skip arc, it took Brunch, and it developed his hometown, it developed his world, and made him matter more. Which, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but Brunch is an excellently designed character. It was nice to see more done with him. Definitely. Mm-hmm. It... It wrapped everything up. It gave you new ingredients where there were complex ways of getting it beyond anything they'd done before. Century soup was difficult to do, but it doesn't match up to having to go and do a dance and grab a monkey's testicles to get pear. All right, time up. It's just... All right, yeah. so my opening argument is that while I do agree with some of those, those, those I think are some of the more uh, positive aspects of the time skip, but I think my problem overall with the skip is that, and I, I hate to say this because I feel like a lot of people say this about a lot of different shonen manga, and it's a very easily uh, sweeping generalization to make, that I I just, personally, I feel like with some series, time skips just, and this might be a bit harsh, but I feel like they're sort of a death sentence in terms of its quality. And with Toriko in particular, I feel like one of my biggest problems with Toriko with the time skip is that um, I feel like Shimabukuro gave us way, to, spent a little too much time giving us exposition and not really enough time developing the characters like he could have. And I also have a problem with him introducing the, uh, the blue grill arc and introducing the opportunity to finally give some of these chef characters more characterization. But the only character we got any characterization for was Yuda and basically decided, Oh, I'm just going to, just gonna uh, skip, uh, go to something else, skip right to the end of that arc, have it all happen off screen, and then tell the whole thing through ten chapters of flashback. I'm sorry, that is not interesting. My time is up. Uh, Sid, I want you to give me a counter-argument. Well, I think the Blue Rock was a clear case of executive meddling. It's very clear to me that Shimaruko had a lot more he wanted to do with that arc, and he did want to show all the chefs in that match, but for some reason or another, his editors or higher-ups at Shonen Jump told him to progress the story around faster. So we go from one chapter where we get an introduction to these matches to something else entirely later on, as Shimabukuro was, I feel, was forced to speed up the story. But overall, I, having reread the entire time skip and the entire series uh, through the course of the year, and the entire time skip ju- portion specifically just in the last two weeks, I think that the series just reads so well beginning to end, and the time skip is no different. The time skip, all that exposition, it is so valuable, and it reads so fluidly and fast when you can read it all at once, and it's remarkable how well things fit together, how much setup, how much buildup and payoff there is for every small little thing. Nothing comes out of nowhere in this series. Torhira Wukuro builds up and sets up every 
little thing, and it's just phenomenal. And I think that there is some good character development. While definitely there are some characters fall by the wayside, Midara's character arc is great. Torko and Starjoon have great moments. Uh, Komatsu and uh, All right, time up. Take have great stuff. Lots of great characterization in there. Uh, so I will agree that Nothing in Toriko just kind of comes out of nowhere. I cannot disagree that Shimabukuro, I think, really other than Oda, probably is the most organized manga author I've ever come in contact with. I I really do think he's genuinely very good about uh about foreshadowing a lot of a lot of neat little plot threads here and there, and I think for the most part are delivered upon very well, but. Uh, just going back to the exposition, like, I do agree that maybe if I marathoned the the time skip, especially, like, post the pair arc, I feel like I'd probably be able to take in a lot of it a little bit more, but I'm sorry, reading it week to week, it, there were just times where, like, I felt like Shimabukuro gave so much exposition in one chapter that, like, you know, there there was there was so much to, like, I feel like there was so much to sink your teeth into, like, every other chapter that, like, I feel like he gave us so much exposition every other chapter that, like, it was, it's hard for me as a reader to, to kind of, like, uh, I guess, quantify that and take it all in. It's just, I, I feel like I wouldn't have had such a problem with the exposition if it, I've, I personally, as a reader, I just felt like it was too much for me to take in and remember, because I'm, I'm so busy trying to remember this thing. And then I have to try to remember this next thing, and then I forget about that thing. It's just overall, I just felt like it was a lot to keep up with. My time's up, uh, Maxi. You give me your counter argument. I'm going to defend Blue Grill. Okay, you watch me do this because what we get here from Shima Bukuro is an attempt at doing something different with a weekly narrative. And whilst it can be hard to follow, it's still almost completely unprecedented to have jumped in and said, I need to chop this out because I need to start wrapping up the story, but then go, actually, I'm now going to jump back and give you these details as they're relevant uh, through a flashback arc. And that's fantastic. That's completely unprecedented. It doesn't work. But as a like creative experiment, it's it's completely phenomenal. Shima Bukuro was willing to take the risk there. Even if it didn't work, it did something. And, you know, you may say, oh, they didn't manage to develop all of the uh, all the chefs like they could have in the Blue Grant. But the development they did do with Yuda, that's some of the best I've seen in the entire series. They took a character who was a one-note joke of just, all oh, one millimeter, which was, you know, it was funny. It was a good joke. And they made him into, like, one of the most hyper-competent and interesting chefs outside of Komatsu himself. Like, that's a heck of an accomplishment. And I think it represents the willingness of Shimabukuro post-timeskip to actually delve more into his jokes, into the most basic of information, and turn it into something fantastic. All right. I I do agree that as as far as experimentation goes, you know, I'm, I guess I am glad he at least tried... And I mean, I like, I have to agree, like, I feel like some of that character development for Yuta, that characterization we got from him was, I definitely agree, some of the best stuff we ever got in Toriko. Like, 
it's it's on the level of say um switch from skept dance and how we get to learn so much about his character and how at first we think oh he's just a quirky guy and he talks through his laptop but little do you know there's actually a really tragic reason why he talks through his laptop and it's something that you would never expect so on that level of writing i think it's very good but i just feel like yeah while i like some of that stuff i just i feel like it's kind of it's sort of pointless when, you know, Shimabukuro is like, literally through the story, is like, oh, what about all these other chefs? Oh, we'll just take them all with us. Who cares? We got them. We got to move through the story. Like, I feel like even the story had some telltale signs of it, uh, of, of it having to rush itself. And it's just, I don't know. Like, yes, I, I like, I like that he was willing to experiment, but. I think the fact that he was willing to experiment and we got some good, some good results out of it. I just kind of, it like, it just kind of hurts me more that like he had to kind of throw that by the wayside, whether it was due to executive meddling or maybe he just wasn't feeling it himself. I don't know. Maybe we'll never know. I don't know. But, uh, my time's up. Uh, Sid, your counter argument. I don't think that the way that, Blue Grill is executed actually reads all that badly when you have, you can read it like all at once. Like it flows just so well and the placement of the arc, the splitting of that arc makes sense. If you would ask me, I would have admitted that you had a chapter just to make the consistent a little more seamless. But as I said before, I think that Shimabukuro did intend to draw out that entire sequence of fights, but was encouraged to cut it short and move on to the next, like, location and show off all the other things before going back to the Blue Grill stuff. But I think that when you can read it all in volume format, it just reads so well. And beyond Yuda, there is actually a lot of characterization and development given to so many of the characters in that arc. The A character introduced in that arc, Asardi, has this really emotional story about him forgetting his wife, but after he he eats another, he regains his memories of her, and we see him visit her grave, and we see, like, her decayed body, like, praying in front of his gay grave, like, uh, his last words to her was, like, wait for me, and she waited for him all the way until her death, and it's just such a powerful scene and moment that's absolutely heartbreaking, and beyond Asardi, we also have the, a closure to Chio's arc, who also was searching for and joined originally joined Gourmet Corp to get center. And then after eating another, she was able to reunite with her son as a food spirit, and that brought closure to her story and to, you know, her and Shin's relationship and like how they grew apart because their son died and stuff. And that was just such a great moment too. There are just a lot of great little moments for all sorts of the supporting characters in the Blue Grill portion of the arc and in the post-time skip arc as a whole. Alright, time up. Uh, to 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 your point about Asardi and uh, Chio, I personally, I felt like those I feel like with Chio especially, I feel like both of those character arcs were kind of rushed. Like, I feel like we didn't get nearly enough time to spend with those as we could have. And that just, that just kind of goes into another one of my problems with the time skip that Shimabukuro, I mean, like, while I kind of appreciate it because I like a lot of the side characters in Toriko, um, I mean, I like that they're all there, but at the same time, 
they're all just like a lot of them are just kind of there and like i'm not i'm not saying they don't do anything but like i feel like shimabukuro tries to tackle way too many characters at once and i feel like because of that like some some characters that like really do need um do need time and focus to develop their character arcs whatever they may be i feel like really fall to the wayside because again he 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 just he tries to tackle too many characters at once and i feel like that really hurts his writing because he doesn't he doesn't have nearly enough time to uh, you know to give each and every character their focus the focus that they deserve especially when it's very possible that yeah he was probably very um he was probably very uh you know pressured to try to rush the story and you know try to end it and i think because of that like i feel like if the time skip had maybe another year or two to run I feel like I feel like we could have gotten more time for a lot of these character arcs and I feel like I probably would have felt something for Asardi cuz I really wanted to like that arc and I think that could have been something great but I don't feel like it was as good as it could be because I don't feel like they got enough time to develop same with uh with Chio's arc I like I had a feeling that I wasn't going to like that uh that character arc because I felt like it was kind of tacked on and it just you know, it had a few nice moments here and there, but like, again, the time skip, I think, suffers from a lot of underdevelopment. And again, I think if it had more time to develop, I think it could have been a lot better. But uh, I'm I'm way over time and I apologize. Um, so I think it's time for closing arguments. And I'm going to give you both guys here a chance because I kind of made you guys alternate. I'm going to give you guys both a chance to make some some closing arguments here. And I think I'm going to start with Maxi. Okay, well, we focused a lot on Blue Grill here as a part of the time skip. I feel like that really fails to acknowledge the excellence of the time skip as a whole. The Billion Bird arc alone manages to reintroduce the core concept and feel of the series, whilst also dealing with some of the fallout uh, from before the time skip happened. And then you have Air, you have Pear, you have God, you have the like one-chapter wedding and the introduction of the space concept at the end. Like... Another did most of the damage to people's perception of the series at the time, and I feel like it genuinely denigrates what was a much more high-concept and expanded version of what had come before, dealing with much bigger ideas than anything the small rocks uh, had had pre-time skip, and it has to be admired flat on every level. I agree with Maxi. I there is just so much to love about the time skip. Like beyond Blue Grill, we do have the Billion Bird Arc, which is such a great reintroduction into the series. We see how devastated the human world is because of the meteor spice and how people in this world that is driven by food culture, no one has any food and they have to eat like these pills and it is just awfully depressing and it just feels so cathartic when you see Toriko and Kamatsu return and prepare people a whole bunch of food from the gourmet world and it's just such a great introduction into the time skip and I think it sets the character for the time skip events as a whole because there's just so much catharsis so much great pleasure and joy to be found in every arc in uh, so many moments and there's just such great world design, just so many, so many unique and memorable settings, great, more great monster designs, we get the introduction of some great characters, like Bambina, we get Acacia, who functions amazingly as a villain, as 
as this Nero, Neo, who has this amazing concept that I absolutely loved. And it all builds to a satisfying and absolutely wonderful conclusion that does justice to the series as a whole in a way that few series finales really ever do. Alright, well, in, in lieu of my closing argument, I, I think I am just going to say that overall... I think I think we can all agree that uh, the post time skip portion of Toriko has a lot of great ideas and is not without its good moments. Like I'd be lying if I said that. I guess overall I agree. Yeah, there there are good moments within the post time skip portion of Toriko, but I still feel like there are, there are a, there are a lot of portions of that story that are that are very rushed and somewhat underdeveloped to my liking. I'll be completely honest. So. While I while I do want to acknowledge that the post time skip arc is is not without its good moments, I still think it could have been a lot better. So I think how I how I want to score this round here because it is very uh, uh, unorthodox and unprecedented. Uh, I don't. I'm sorry, guys. Like I don't think you convinced me enough that the post time skip stuff is all the way good. But I will say that you guys have brought up enough good points about the time skip and have made me remember enough about the good qualities about the time skip and what it had to offer that I am willing to give you both a point. So Maxi has one point while Sid has five. So overall, the winner of the debate round by a landslide will be Sid. Okay, I'm ready to make this up. All right, so... Again, I'm, I, I apologize to all you listeners if you thought, uh, uh, my, my little stunt was a little, uh, was a little unorthodox, but I, I just, I felt like, I felt like it would, it would have been more, I just felt like, you know, Maxie and Sid arguing with me about the time skip would have been a little more interesting than, uh, than Maxie and Sid arguing amongst themselves. I feel like one of us would have had to have been very insincere to have made the argument against the time skip. So, like, I, I think it was definitely the, the right sort of call to make. Yeah, though I wish we did have a fourth person to make the call. Because, obviously, <laughs> well, both... because they'd of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, not necessarily, because uh, we could have had a completely unbiased person, like, make the decision. <laughs> like, this, like, this, like that's kind weird. of how Colton was with our Inuyasha manga fight, but then that person might get and mad emails and tweets about why did you judge it this way you shouldn't judge manga fights you don't know anything it about doesn't matter no matter who we get somebody is going to disagree with that judge and we're still going to get angry emails either way i can guarantee it yeah i don't get wrong i, I feel like this episode people are going to pretty much agree with most of your calls so far except for that one. yeah th- th- that this one will probably be a little divisive but you know what it spurs conversation and as long as it does that i feel like i've done my job because let's be honest like i feel like you know sometimes there is no real definitive answer because it's like there this is all this is all based in opinion so mm-hmm. you know i like i don't mind people disagreeing with my uh with my calls or my opinions on or or the way i handle these uh i judge these fights because i know i'm not perfect i admitted it in our in our, in our last manga fight i suck as a judge i admit it but i'm gonna do the best i can and i'm gonna call them the way i call them Mm-hmm. But but you know not not without any like any real like sincere thought like I I I try to put as much thoughts into my decisions as I as I can um, within the time frame we're given. But again, overall, the winner of the debate round is Sid Maxi. 
you know, he he tried. <laughs> I get a little bad saying, well done, you tried your best. Maxi deserves a gold star. He did give some good arguments here and there, but... I mean, I can, I can definitely say he gave spirited arguments. They may not have made sense, but they had spirit. But, uh, you know, Sid, Sid is running away with all these manga fights. Can, can no one defeat <laughs> Sid, our, our three-time debate champion? I am the god of manga fights. And chopsticks, forks, spoons. What do you think a god uses when he eats? His bare hands! Oh, like, like the hands of an actual bear. That quote didn't, doesn't make sense in context, but I just wanted to... I, I, I hadn't quoted... You've got to use them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Maxi does have a chance to redeem himself in the speed round. So how we conduct this round, just in case you haven't listened to manga fights before, is that uh, the speed round will definitely uh, be significantly, will take significantly less time. Again, we have five more questions, but in this case, um, but both of our contestants will essentially have to make their opening argument one counter-argument, and then their closing argument, all within the span of 20 seconds. So, pretty much each question, contestants will have one minute to basically uh, debate their point. So, with that all said, I'm going to go right into our first question here, and that is, which other Shonen Jump series should Toriko have had crossovers with? And, uh, I think, uh, with Sid being the winner of, uh, of our last uh of our debate round and you know overall uh i'm gonna give sid our his uh, opening argument so go ahead sid you have 10 seconds so i think that torco should cross over with the four part of jojo uh diamonds unbreakable because i think a great concept for a crossover would be joski and okuyasu trying some of Kazu's cooking and some of the crazy dishes from torco that you know cause reactions like your body changes to that of the woman or your eyebrows grow out your hair grows out and i think it would be hilarious to do just an entire chapter episode that is just that and, you know, Okuyasu and Josuke having crazy reactions right, like up. they did in the Tonio episode. Alright, uh, Maxi, your opening argument? Trico should cross over in a horror-style one-shot with Kohei Horikoshi's debut series Omegadoki Zoo, in which Trico and Komatsu are presented as villains, grotesque monsters coming into the <laughs> zoo and eating each individual humanoid animal in <laughs> grotesque ways as the characters try and fight for survival. It would be one of the most grotesque and peculiar things ever to happen and out of character for both series, but it would sell gangbusters. All right, uh, Sid, counter-argument. Your thing sounds disturbing, and I don't want to see beloved characters from Okisu mutilated, but I do want to see Josuke and Okuyasu hilariously overreact to dishes from Toriko and have crazy reactions, and I think that would be comedic gold. Alright, uh, Maxi, your counter-argument. Part 4 Diamond is Unbreakable is actually just a part of a full manga series, and as such not eligible as a candidate <laughs> in this argument. <laughs> Uh, although also realistically it's a bit of a sort of one note thing to go and take like such a singular moment from the series and uh find it decent enough to cross over with the rest of Toriko as a whole. Alright, uh Sid, closing argument. Diamond Unbreakable is in right now because the anime, and so it's pretty relevant, and people treat each part of Jojo's as a separate manga to begin with. But even if but even as a if you didn't, if you just take the characters from that series, that's the same thing. It makes for a perfect crossover. All right, Maxi, closing argument. 
Omegadoki Zoo is in right now. The whale from the series has actually turned up as a hero in My Hero Academia. (laughs) It's in the popular consciousness. And presumably back in reprints as a way of having a bit of cross-sale there. So it's the perfect moment to seize on this and make a really disgusting one-shot that would probably be bad branding for Conan John. All right. uh, Debate over. I like both ideas, but... uh, Man, I'm I'm very conflicted because Sid's idea is a little more in um is a little more in tune with with what Toriko's all about, and I feel like yes, while it is a singular moment from Diamond is Unbreakable, I feel like it's it's at least in spirit with with Toriko at the very least. But I'm not gonna lie, I really do like Maxi's idea of of a. Uh, Toriko coming in to eat all of the animals from Omagadoki Zoo. And while that would be a that would be a terrible crossover, honestly, I still think it would be pretty great at the same time, because Toriko is also very much known for how grotesque it could be at times. Uh though not super often. So I think in terms of and I really hate to do this, but I think in terms of a crossover that's a little more in spirit with Toriko. And while I do agree with Maxi that it is it is a very severely singular point in all of JoJo, I feel like Sid's answer makes a little more sense. So I feel like I'm going to have to go with Sid. But I do I really like that idea, Maxi. I really want to see it so bad. That's the thing. It, it's the one you want to see in print more, but it's not the one that wins arguments. <laughs> I know. See, Max, Maxi is very good at giving me what I want, but it's like... Yeah. No, I, I definitely want to read Maxi's thing. That's actually—I I honestly want to go out and draw a fan comic now of Maxi's idea because that just sounds. You, amazing. Sh- you should. That would be amazing, Sid. You should. You should get. I should. Hopefully, I'll find time. What, okay. Once you get out of school, you need to make time. You need to. You need to make time and draw that. Oh yeah, that's. Uh, I have. I have a folder of projects that I want to do when I get out of school and have the time. Like there's. Uh, there's that segment of life lessons that I was listening to you and you mentioned, hey, I wish that someone would animate this. And I was like, oh, and then you explicitly mentioned me and I'm like, yeah, I'll do that, buddy. Oh, I yeah. We t- I, so, I, I think, I, think yeah. I remember what you're talking about. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Do- Doctor so was that's on that on one. My- yeah. Yeah, that's on my backlog. <laughs> Lots of things. Yeah, yeah. When you when you get out of school, you're you're pretty much your part time job's gonna be uh, animating whatever funny segments come out of my podcast. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> that's that's kind of been like my dream ever since I I started I started doing podcasts. Is that I get popular enough to where people do like animated segments from my show. It's <laughs> like that's that's like my ultimate goal in my podcasting life. But anyway, um, so. Unfortunately, Sid wins, and I say that only because I I love Maxi's ideas so much. I I can't I can't say that enough. But we should really move on to the next round. So, um, our next question uh, is: uh, Who is the best Shonen Jump chef? Komatsu, Sanji, Soma, or somebody else? Uh, Sid, your first opening argument. Go. Well, Kamatsu did prepare God, so I think that you kind of have to go with him here. I mean, no one else has achieved as many accomplishments as Kamatsu has. He prepared century, he recreated century soup, he learned how to prepare air, uh, he 
he also assisted in preparing okay, care. Time up. He was the one responsible for another. Like so many accomplishments couldn't have happened without the Kamatsu. All right, Maxi, uh, your pick. I'm going to throw Soma out here because whilst Komatsu is capable of doing like really interesting things, the great thing with Soma is the reactions are so visceral, so over the top. He can blow clothes off of anyone regardless of gender or standing in life or what they believe in. He will make them feel something in a way that's frankly a little bit PG-13. All right. Well, I think Komatsu can also do the same thing. Remember, he did compare pair, which changes people's genders, and we did see some uh, full breasts <laughs> yeah, when he did no that. Nipples. So, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, but you also had to see Zonga with breasts and a beard, and I feel like that means that we've forgotten <laughs> that that scene ever happened. <laughs> I haven't. Well, I, I'm... I'm- uh, hey, we, we should probably go back and redo our most memorable moments in Toriko, apparently, Sid, so you can uh, use that as your answer. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, we, could, we could have made every argument about Zonga if we wanted to. Yeah. All right. So uh, sh- sh- should I count that as your counter argument, Maxi? Or? Uh, I, I, sure. Everything. <laughs> okay. Uh, go. I guess, Sid, go ahead with your closing argument. Kamasu achieved so many like culinary accomplishments that no other chef in any shonen, other shonen jump manga could possibly hope to measure up to. Kamasu is hands down the best and most accomplished chef in shonen jump. All right, uh, Maxi, closing argument. Soma Yukihira is capable of actually doing something that Kamatsu never achieved in eight and a half years of publication. He makes food that you can actually make at home. <laughs> that is that is like infinitely powerful. The fact you can actually read Soma and go and say, "Yeah, I can make this. It's real food. It's not mad bullshit from the brain of a maniac. It's actual food." <laughs> All right, uh, time up. Um, I'm kind of conflicted here because I kind of have my own opinions on Kamatsu that I'm really trying not to like use to judge this round. But I think it is worth mentioning that personally, I think that. I, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like Komatsu is a huge Gary Stew. Like, I feel like, not that it, that's I feel a real like, thing. say what, Maxi? I said, not that that's actually a real thing, but I get what you mean. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it, like, yeah. to me, it feels like, I feel like at one point, I mean, Komatsu is, he's a good chef, obviously, but I feel like a lot of that has to do with, because I, honestly, I feel like food luck in Toriko is sort of a, is sort of a very like OP cop out kind of uh, concept anyway. Like, like, like characters at one point literally use it as like a combat technique. Like, does doesn't doesn't Joey at one point just like shoot food luck from his eyes to fight um to fight Star June? Like, I don't know. I I feel like I feel like because of that, I feel like Komatsu's achievements don't really feel super earned because it feels like to me it feels like. That because food luck exists, like food luck exists to me as like a way to kind of progress the story and to help Komatsu just kind of achieve all these things no matter what because he's a main character. That's just me personally, but I I don't I don't want to use that to judge the round here. But I feel like <sighs> I I do I do kind of agree with Maxi's point that I think it's a it is a good thing that like uh. Soma is uh Soma is kind of responsible for actually creating dishes that like uh, people who people who read Food Wars can actually make but I don't know 
I'm very see. I'm very conflicted with like the actual accomplishments of the characters versus like my own opinions of Kamatsu. Well, the important thing to remember with Kamatsu, right, is he had a nose job, and that's just unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird how his nose changes designs. Well, I mean, they actually address it in the series as well. Like, it gets pummeled back into shape. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, God, to me, like, some of Komatsu's accomplishments don't really feel earned sometimes. So I don't know. Wait, I thought you already judged the match. I I I haven't declared a winner. So I don't know. Just give it to Maxi. I think you make your <laughs> okay. points. Hey, if if you insist, Maxi is the winner. I'll, I'll take it where I can get it. <laughs> uh, all right. I love how Sid's just like it's it's okay, Cole. You can give it to Maxi. I understand. <laughs> so we're gonna move on to our next round, round three. Okay, guys, I want you to pitch Toriko as a live action movie. We're gonna go with Maxi first. Opening argument. Imagine Jesse Eisenberg is Toriko, a student with a penchant for food from the streets. He meets up with his chef Kamatsu, played by John Favreau, as they go to a scientific facility that allows them to go through an other dimensional portal to the gourmet world where they can eat the best foods in the world in a magical adventure brought to you by Disney Entertainment. 10 out of 10. Ooh, wow, he was ready. Uh, Sid, opening argument. I would not trust. Okay, I, my I think that David Yates should direct a Torco feature because he just did Fantastic Beats, Where to Find Him, which had great you know monster designs, and you know I think he could really create a magical world just like the Harry Potter verse for Torico with some great creatures. And I think that we need someone really muscly but also funny as uh, Torico. So I'm thinking the Rock, Dwayne Johnson himself as the, our main man Torco. Then we need a funny like kind of likable sidekick. I'm thinking Jonah Hill for that. And then we need kind of like an, a, a guy with charisma and right, pr- intimidating up. presence, a sergeant. I'm thinking Colin Farrell. All right. Uh, go ahead, Maxi. Counter-argument. That sounds perfectly good, but I have more to offer here. It's directed by David Lynch for reasons unknown. It's bizarre. It's weird. <laughs> Terry is a CGI dog played by Jennifer Lawrence, but it's not actually her. It's just that clip of her talking about how she put her rear end on top of some sacred rocks. It's a magical experience that makes no sense to anyone at all. Children lose their minds watching the Tariko live-action film. It's Super Mario Brothers for a new generation. <laughs> it's abominable. It's vicious. It's disgusting. Okay, and it's up. frankly the best film you can watch this Christmas. Okay. Sid, go ahead. Super Mario Brothers isn't a good movie. I think that the pieces I'm putting in place are going to make a good movie. You're hoping to make the So Bad It's Good memorable movie, and that's well and good. But I want, actually, to do my best to try and make Torka great. And you know what's not going to make Torka great? John Favreau, I mean, no, uh, Jesse Eisenberg playing the main, playing Torko himself. He was a terrible Lex Luthor. What makes you think he'll be anything as a good Torko? All right, Maxi, close my closing argument here is really simple and straightforward i'm not out to make a great movie i'm out to go and pitch you the movie that will actually be made there is no such thing as a good hollywood live action adaptation of a manga anime there never will be i've given you reality you're dreaming like a maniac i'm telling you about jesse eisenberg and his Terrible role as Tariko coming out in okay, winter 2018. Sid, You're wrong because there is one, and that's all you need is kill. 
And I know that's also te- that's technically based on a novel, but it is a good movie well, that you, has a you manga, say this. god dang it. And I think that Toriko could work as a really great, really fun action movie with a really ma- cool magical world. It could, with a, a great director like David Yates in place and with some great actors like The Rock and Jonah Hill to give some comedic edge to the project, I think it turned out very well. And of course, you need a good script right, writer who's passionate about up. the series and the project, and I think okay. we can get that. <laughs> Here's the thing, though, right? So this this is outside of the argument for a second. But I'm I, I'm I'm sorry. Did uh, what film did you try and argue was a good adaptation? All you need is kill. I I don't think there's a film called that, is there? No, there's a film called Edge of <laughs> Tomorrow. There's a film called on DVD yeah. Live Die Repeat. Well, it there, was. There's no all you need is kill adaptation, so I uh, think that's no, off the board. No, it's based on all you need is kill. They, even though they changed the name, that's fine. It's like. It's it's like how they adapt the names of manga over here. Like Food Wars isn't a direct adaptation of Shokugeki no Soma. It's like no, because it's the same comic with a different name. This Okuno is an adaptation. Okuno no Ken isn't like a direct. Fist and North isn't a direct translation of Okuno no Ken. They changed the names. It's the same thing. Same they thing. Did change, with Edge of Tomorrow. Did, all you need is kill. They did change the name of Fist of the North Star significantly from Mad Max starring Bruce Lee, it's true. Okay, so uh, so are you, are you guys telling me that if there were ever a live-action uh, Hollywood uh, adaptation of Toriko, it wouldn't be called Toriko, it would be uh, it would be called uh, Beefy Meat Eaters? Oh, no, hold on, no, I, I've got this. So th- this is the ultimate designing factor is what do you call a Toriko live-action film? Because, uh, I mean, obviously, I, I imagine that the, the one that you're suggesting, Sid, would be called, like, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Eat Them. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> my, mine would just be called Tariko, colon, an abomination. But that's that's not punctuation. That's a little on the nose. It's just yeah, called Tariko, colon, an abomination. Again, I'm it's trying weird. to make a good movie. You're trying to make uh The real movie. <laughs> Okay, so again, I'm conflicted because uh, Sid, <laughs> Sid, uh, Sid gave a pretty good. Um, he he had a he had a good plan here. He had a good pitch for a live action movie, uh, but I feel like I kind of have to agree with Maxi that like it really, really in the real world, this is probably something we would actually get. Maybe not this exact casting or or whatnot, but. If we ever got a live action Toriko movie, it would it would probably not be what Sid really what anyone wants. It's not like at the end of the day, most of these live action adaptations, these Hollywood adaptations of like really popular anime manga franchises, they're never going to be what you want ever. They're never going to be perfect, and we all just have to live with them. So I'm going to get the round of My dream is to change that. One day, I want to go and make a good movie a good live action adaptation of a manga series i have a vision i have i've been in my spare time sometimes i i'm writing out a script for a potentially good dragon ball z live action movie well good luck with that one day i want to hope to get that made but it it just 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 battle of the gods with actors that's all i want You know, exactly. You need to keep the humor in there. That's what Evolution failed at that. It tried to make Dragon Ball something it's not. Yeah. Tried to make it superhero, your generic superhero-y Spider-Man kind of thing. But it that's not what Dragon Ball is, and that's no. why it fails yeah. so much. Agreed. 
Uh, but uh, I'm sorry, Sid. For, for the fact that Maxi is giving us reality, which is actually something that would happen, I, I have to give the round to him. But I, but I will say I, I did like your pitch, though. Thank you. I, I did like Maxie's your pitch. pitch was awesome. I, I did have a blast in it. Well, so. the, the beautiful thing is, right, is like you thought I was prepared there. I just have to throw this out here that all I'd written down was Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, well, I'm 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 glad. Apparently, Jesse Eisenberg gave you so much to work with there, Maxie. <laughs> well, originally in my head, I think I was going to make him Komatsu, and then I just said it wrong, and I kept going. <laughs> I, I don't know. I either role would not fit him. That's for sure. Um, he'd be, a, no, he'd no be a better Kamatsu than Toriko for sure, though. I guess, I thought, but in all actuality, yeah. I would probably cast Michael Serra as Kamatsu. Jesus Christ, mm. that would happen, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, because he, he's got that sort of weird nervousness, awkwardness, but in a very Western way. So, it, like, it's it's actually who they would cast. <laughs> I kind of want that to happen now. Okay. Um, all right, but let's move on to our next round. Okay, guys, funniest moment in Toriko, Maxi, go. I really like the relaxed face that Century Soup gives people. It's such a simple, basic visual gag, but, like, it just, it makes you smile inside, and you feel good. It's it's heartwarming, it's funny, it makes you do a little soft chuckle, and it makes you want to drink the soup and have a bad face yourself. All right, uh, Sid, funniest moment in Toriko, go. This is a moment from after, from like the first chapter of the post time skip, and it's just amazing, like completely random exchange that I absolutely love. So Toriko, Toriko tells Kamatsu, "Hey, let's go back to human world." And Kamatsu's like, "Oh my god, finally! I've been waiting for this." But then Toriko's like, "Oh shoot, wait, I have to go catch the feather road mushroom child first. And Kamatsu's like, "Who cares about the feather road mushroom child? You can get a fucking feather road mushroom child." Next time, let's just go home already. You can catch it any time. And I just love, I just love how ang- how like angry and desperate he is to go home, and how he's like, "Don't go and get the stupid federal mushroom child." What? And he he literally says this: "What is a federal mushroom child anyway?" And I just love love this exchange so much because it's so out of nowhere. The idea of this federal mushroom child is just so freaking hilarious and brilliant. Okay, uh, Maxi Catter, <laughs> uh, th- that is a really funny moment. I, I think the thing I'm going to say for the Century Soup face is that the extended filtering part of it is actually very linked to classic Japanese comedy, uh, which is the pervert face. You'll see this in other series like Eyes and that, but it's like this drawn out filtering, this goofy face is supposed to be the sort of face you pull when you're leching over a woman. Instead, it's used here because the soup was tasty, and that's brilliant. <laughs> All right, uh, Sid. Mine is just an incredibly great gag that I, I can't stop laughing at whenever I think about it. Because it's just such the perfect joke in terms of comedic timing. Because Toriko is so nonplussed, he's just, like, eating while he's thinking, Oh, shoot, I have to go get this Federal Mushroom Child. And you see Shimatsu just freaking out about, No! No! Let's just go home already! Enough is enough! What even is this Federal Mushroom Child thing? And then he looks down and says, Wait, when did you take food from me? I was holding this bowl in my hand, and it's like, Next panel, you're eating it? What what happened there? It's just a great thing. Great exchange and great image. I love it. All right, closing argument, Maxi, go. 
Sid's pulling the devious trick of reminding me of more of the joke as he goes, and so I'm actually laughing to myself about it. But the thing with Century Soup is it's a joke that's given room to breathe. It doesn't need extra words or ridiculous reactions, though it does have reactions to the face, because it's a stupid, funny face. It has very Bobo-style reactions. But it's also just a nice, airy, silly, floaty joke that's the sort of thing you want in a comic that's both aimed at kids and teens. All right, Sid. I think just of all the jokes in Torco, this one makes me laugh just the hardest. Like, I mean, there, the Century Soup smiling face is pretty funny, but it doesn't make me laugh out loud as much as the whole federal mushroom child exchange and panel. It's just such a great moment. I love it. All right. Uh, round over. And before I make my judgment call here, I want to say that comedy is subjective. Just because you find one thing funny doesn't mean someone else is going to find it funny. So just just putting that out there. It's always important to keep in mind. So with that being said, personally, I feel like I kind of have to agree with Maxi on, um, on the Sentry Soup face. Because I feel like while I also think the moment you bring up Sid is very funny too... I do kind of have to agree with Maxie that from from Maxie's arguments, I think it's safe to say that I feel like the century uh, the century soup face joke kind of works on not too many, but uh, but on a few multiple levels. Like it's a it's a funny face. First off, that's that's the first most important level. But uh, you know what Maxie also brought up about how you know it's it's kind of the kind of the typical like lecherous pervert face. And, you know, uh, that, that kind of that, that being its origin kind of makes that even funnier as well to kind of see that in a, in a comic for kids and preteens, uh, essentially. And, uh, I, I feel like the Century Soup joke, uh, like, cause that's, that's kind of almost sort of a running joke here and there. I mean, obviously it doesn't get used as much later. I mean, it does show up in the last chapter, though. So it, that it, does. it does. It, that's how good a joke it is. <laughs> it, and yet, yeah. you, you don't see any federal, but I've uh, mushroom. Federal, federal mushroom, mushroom child doesn't turn up at the end, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish it did because I want to see it. Because what I, is the federal? I'm with Kamatsu here. What is the federal mushroom child? <laughs> you 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 go invite Shima Bakura and get him to send you a drawing. Yeah, I, I should. <laughs> okay, ne- okay, Sid. Next time, ne- okay, if Shimabuku ever comes to uh, New York City Comic Con, you have to go visit him and and re- have him request that he draws you that. Yes, for <laughs> sure. Um, point is, I I think Maxi's example, like the Century Soup face joke, like I think is such a great running joke. Like it's one of those running jokes, kind of like with uh, kind of like with Brooks uh, skull jokes from One Piece. I feel like are the kind of jokes that like don't that that like personally I don't think really ever gets old and always at least manages like like a chuckle like huh, that's that's funny that's cute I like that you know like it always it always elicits some kind of reaction out of me so I have to go with Maxie's choice here okay but uh, anyway on to our last uh, this is such a fast speed round guys uh, <laughs> uh, but but on for on for our last 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 question for the speed round um, I want you guys. To pitch to me the next series Shimabukuro should draw. Maxi, it is your turn first. Opening arguments. I am so sorry for this, guys. So, often after a successful series, an author will tend to go and do something that's more personal, a place where they can do their soapbox opinions. So Shimabukuro's next series 
will be one about a manga artist who's trying to prove to the world that it's perfectly okay <laughs> to try and solicit sex from oh, a 17 year old. No. Oh my god. Oh no. It will run about 10 weeks and each one will just literally be the character standing on a soapbox and going, it's fine. You shouldn't have canceled my series. It was doing oh, really she, well. Well, that's, no that's one not going to run and jump anytime soon. I could tell you that. Um, it will run in <laughs> ultra jump because that's the one for creeps. Whoa. Sid, uh, pit, pitch me a series. Go. Um, your series doesn't sound very PC, but uh, I think that Shimabukuro's strengths are his great artwork and his, the adrenaline-ish adrenaline that he can put into his uh, action sequences. I think that we need someone like him to make a sports manga that is pure adrenaline, pure pure action and I think he can do a great job with a sports manga and specifically I want to see him do baseball because we need another baseball title alright Maxi uh, counter argument I'm not saying that my series is lacking in sporting moments. In the penultimate chapter, when he goes postal and gets a golf club and a series of golf balls and starts shooting them through the windows of the Shuisha offices saying, you shouldn't have cancelled my series. Everybody liked it. It had a bearded child. It was fine. Like, that's a sporting moment. He, he does a hole in one when it goes through the window and right into the editor-in-chief's mouth. That's the sort of skill you wouldn't get elsewhere. All right, Sid, counter-argument. We can have a gag like that in my series too, but the main reason I want to have Shimabukuro draw a baseball manga is because I think we need a mangaka with his kind of qualities, with his kind of weirdness as a author, as well as his fantastic artwork and like really great action sequences to make a baseball title, to get one of those titles successful and jump again. Because we need something fresh and new, a new take on that, that kind of title. All right, uh, Maxi, closing argument. I present to you a series that was a horrifying soapbox for the most controversial moment in an author's life in the name of a cheap gag on this podcast. But let me tell you this. When it has its spectacular ending in which uh, Shima Bakura reveals that he was the main character all along, turns towards the reader and says, you should support baseball manga and jump. He <laughs> achieves far more than he ever could have done by actually doing a baseball comic. It's phenomenal. It is a comic that achieved so much and it it will revive baseball again without ever actually having it in the series <laughs> okay uh sid closing argument but the concept of your work if i don't think it would ever get translated over here much less be circulated <laughs> very much in japan alone but a great baseball title drawn by shimabukuro i think that would get licensed over here like especially if it ran and jump and you know if the timing was right i think that it could hit big i think could bring a lot of originality to that genre that's had trouble, you know, getting in, getting success and jump since Mr. Full Swing ended. All right. Um, Maxi, while I, I do like your idea, I don't think it's something that would ever happen, though I do appreciate the gag. Um, oh, boy. That literally sounds like something that, like, um, how do I want to describe this? It's it's on the level of, like, go-na-guy batshit insanity. <laughs> That was exactly what I was aiming for. It's like a combination of that and the way that authors like uh, Mangatro will get to the end of his series about like cutesy little fairy girls doing grotesque stuff and turn around at the end and say, and now we're going to have them all killed. Uh, which, that was a Jump Square series. It was really bad. Don't read stuff by Mangatro. Don't. Uh, but no, yeah, I, I, I aimed for something horrifying and awful. I'm, I'm willing to concede it. <laughs> I do, I do want to read your, your idea too. That's an, I'll, I'll pencil that down as another fan comic. I oh, Jesus. 
<laughs> Especially like if you use like Shima Bakuro's design from uh, that author photo he has, where he's like yeah. cosplaying as uh, the rival from Makuman. <laughs> like that, that would be oh, wow. just fantastic. Um, oh yeah, I feel like I have to go with Sid's answer. Especially since, as we all know, you know Shima Bukuro already has um, experience with sports manga, as uh, you know he did ser- he did do a series called Ring, which uh, which uh, which was a boxing manga. It looks like so. Um, so we know he has experience with sports series. So I I haven't really read a lot of baseball manga, um, just because I haven't really gotten the chance. Like if Shima Bukuro would do one, I would totally read it. Honestly, <sighs> all right, but. Um, I think it's clear that uh, Sid wins by a landslide overall. Yeah, I, I, I fought my way back up a little bit at the end here, but it wasn't enough. As far as I was concerned, this was never a fight. It was a one-sided <laughs> meal. Granted, it didn't taste very good. Oh, oh. shit. Bird. <laughs> oh, my feelings. No, but really, I I really enjoyed this fight. This Thank you, Maxi. Fun, this is awesome. <laughs> I got to a lot of goofs, and I got I got a whole four <laughs> points. Mm-hmm. You did make a great comeback in the speed round. Yeah, I I'm a shonen protagonist here. <laughs> <laughs> if we were judging this all, all on goofs alone, I probably would have given just I would have probably just given Maxi the entire round, honestly, but. We 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 gotta we got we gotta we, we gotta take this at least somewhat seriously as apparently people expect us to. Uh, <laughs> so there we go, Sid. Uh, that this is your third win in a row. How do you feel? I don't know how to feel right now. I'm just thinking about things. Hmm. And here's a thought: Why do you think we eat to stay alive? To leave behind descendants? <laughs> Wrong. It's only because we get hungry. We don't eat so that our species will prosper, nor to share something with others. Appetite is more self-centered than that. It's an absolute desire that's put first before anything else. Even if you wanted to die, your hunger wouldn't stop. Ah, yes, but there is actually one. One emotion whose flavor I actually did enjoy. You think that just because you recovered in the speed round, or you put all the pieces in place, but as I showed you, I'm the one who had all the pieces in place. Now, let me devour your despair! Instead of pieces in place, I heard that as pizzas and plates, and that just became amazing. (laughs) Oh man, pizzas and plates, that sounds pretty good right about now. But both the pizzas and the plates. Uh... Man, I'm hungry. Okay, so... Uh, I'm not hungry because all my memories are in my belly. Even now, they're getting better with age. With the same unchanging flavor and taste, my body will continue to be satisfied. But seriously, actually, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> you, are, you are just going to use up any, any of those quotes you can, will you? I mean, this is the only chance I'm going to have to for a good while. So, uh, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, if we, I mean, the next time we record Manga Mavericks, you could just bring it up out of context. But I'd just be like, um, Sid, are you okay? I mean, uh, you need a break. Nah, yeah. it wouldn't. That wouldn't be nearly as relevant or funny. So, this is true. It would just be like some very weird, surreal, out there comedy that would make me feel like, oh, I don't get it, but I guess it's funny. Yeah, uh, it's like, it would be like if we'd be thrown smack dab into the middle of a battle against the final boss. Like having... <laughs> <laughs>
All right, uh, we all we all had a lot of fun here today, but um, we should uh, we should start wrapping up here by uh, getting to a lot of the emails and uh, our just general Q and A's we've gotten uh, that are Toriko themed. So, Sid, uh, would you like to start reading those for us? Yes. All right. So first, we got an email from Allison, and she doesn't have a question so much as giving her thoughts on the series. And she writes, "Hello, Manga Mavericks. It's me out nine hundred here. Just giving you some thoughts on Toriko. My first exposure to Toriko was through the English dub Funimation made. She didn't have much interest in it after they discontinued the dub, but after the show was being uh, simulcasted on Crunchyroll, eventually she." They got Torco backlog, and she binge-watched all of it. While the animation wasn't, wasn't great, she saw the potential in the series for big battles and fun characters. Eventually, she began reading the manga through other means because uh, she saw Weekly Shonen Jump was giving free, weeks, uh, free issues as a preview, and then subscribed to their services after she saw how thin their chapters of Torco were. Uh, she says she thinks about reading the earlier volumes, but she remembers Torko's really long, and so she's not into getting into long manga that are only sold in single volumes. She's hoping Torko will get omnibuses or a box set like One Piece and Formal Alchemist. And, yeah, I, I hope that Torko would too, but I don't know how well it does for Viz, so I wouldn't, like, bet on it, but it's a pipe dream. Um... Yeah. Her thoughts, her general thoughts on Toriko is that it's a good battle shonen for people who don't want to sit through 500 episodes of DBZ or 700 episodes of Naruto and Shippuden or One Piece. She likes the ideas that it came up with and also loved how the artist would make drawings of fans submitted food monsters, something I also thought was really great that Chimbuka did. Uh, her favorite character is Zebra because he starts off evil but is actually a really cool dude. Well, Zebra was never really evil, but he was kind of like an anti-hero-ish character. Uh, yeah. She closes off saying she wishes Toriko had more fans over here because it's really good, but its potential was missed much like Hitman Reborn and Sergeant Frog. She hopes the creator can make another manga that is just as good as Toriko, or even better. And I definitely agree. I think Shimabukuro does have that potential in it, and I'm really excited for his next work. Absolutely, like those are just really well thought out points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very succinct and very great. Thank you for that email, Allison. And now we'll move on to some questions we've got from Reddit. Uh, we've got a question here from un- uh, Dead X One who asks, "What's up with Joey? If Froze was no longer there, who else inhabited that body?" A gourmet spirit that happened to be a part of Froze. And it was explained in the series that Joey uh, was a chef that actually existed. He was a dark chef that participated in the cooking festival 200 years before the uh, beginning of the series. And so he was a, you know, renowned dark gourmet chef from back in the day. When Froze didn't want to refuse to be revived by Acacia, uh, Joey took her place and inhabited her body. So Joey was a person who did exist originally. And uh, he he was something who... He he did just kind of in, in take over Froze's body because Acacia decided to revive him instead of Froze when Froze refused to be revived. Hmm, okay. I, I then, honestly... I 
if 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 anyone here is like ever listened to to the Heavenly Kings podcast, uh, which is a podcast I record, I used to record with my friends about Toriko, which I don't know what we're going to do about that show now that series is over just yet. But yeah, if if if, if anyone's ever listened to that show, like. I'm I'm pretty infamous for like always forgetting about story details at some points. So sometimes, like when I was reading the it's like reading the series weekly was kind of kind of difficult because you know stuff stuff like that with Froze and like his origins. I I I totally have like forgot about that honestly. So yeah, what what what, what I'm saying is I never I never would have remembered that. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, Shimabukuro packs a lot of information in the series, and it's definitely a lot easier to process and, you know, keep track of it when you're reading it all in a burst rather than just weekly when you can kind of forget about things after a certain time. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, it's information I feel like I understood, but not necessarily information where I had the full context, like how well it was foreshadowed or anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. it. I think that, that's that is the thing. Is just you. You can often lose the context, even if you understand what's happening. Yeah, because Joey as a character is mentioned as far back as Century Soup, if long before she he actually makes his first appearance in the Meteor Garlic arc, and then long before his face was revealed then in the Cooking Festival arc. So there's a long, long stretch of time where it's building up to his reveal. And Neo is an organization as well, so there's a lot of setup there that I can definitely see people being forget forget because that happened over a course of like three four years. Yeah, so I think what we've learned here today is that Toriko is definitely a lot more um, uh, a lot more, I guess, uh, digestible. Yeah, it's a lot. Di- it's a lot more. T- <laughs> that's kind of a pun. Uh, digestible th- uh, through a reread, which is something I'm really going to have to pursue in the future because I really do want to reread Toriko at some point. Mm-hmm. I recommend it. It's a great. Ex- it's a great experience. Uh, and we got some more questions from on Reddit from Laserfork. Uh, he's curious about the ingredients they choose for their full courses. He's wondering if there's an infinite amount in the full course, or if there's a limit you can eat from each. And I think as we've seen in the final chapter, uh, that you can get seconds on full course items, but you, but the chefs, uh, try to balance out the portions so that people can eat the entire full course without filling up on something early. So, uh, there, there you can potentially be infinite if you have a bottomless appetite, but generally most people, the portions are proportioned out accordingly. It does make you wonder if there have been, uh, chef and gourmet hunter combinations where they've been so poorly synced that, you know, they've worked out their full course, they've gone to make it and eat it, and they've like screwed up and had too much starter or soup and just like can't go any further. That would have been funny to see, but. Just, just tragic as well. Yeah, both f- it be commie tragic or whatever the term would be. Yeah, but yeah. And then we get another question from Laser Fork who asks, uh, he 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 has one more question regarding how the gourmet demons choose to manifest bodies and what the process is. Are gourmet cells themselves working like portals for them to enter someone's body? Can the gourmet demons see the body they are going to manifest in? And uh, that is kind of how it works because gourmet cell demons are basically food spirits they do uh 
as we've seen in the back channel during the uh, Blue Grill arc, like how reincarnation kind of worked, is that they when a food spirit dies, they go return to the back channel, and then later on they can be reborn in someone years later who's compatible with them. So that's kind of what happened with Don Slime, uh, Torco Cell Demons. So, gourmet cells do, so the way you describe it is kind of like how it is. Gourmet cells do kind of facilitate the revival of gourmet spirits in new host bodies. I don't know if the gourmet demon can choose who they revive into because as we saw with Don Slime, uh, he might not necessarily have chosen to revive an Ichiru, uh, at first if he had known as we had known Ichiru's personality, even though eventually, you know, he became extremely close with him. So, I don't know about that aspect, but yeah, gourmet cells do facilitate the revival of gourmet spirits. Well, there you go. And there we go. And uh, finally, we have some questions from the One Dream Adventure Reborn forums from Wednesdaydale Cheddar, who asked uh, two questions. Uh, he's so he, Allah, he writes, I'm sure a lot of people are going to ask this, but are you disappointed that Koku, Sunny, and Zebra had their individual eight kings arc skipped in favor of reaching Torko's conclusion more quickly? If so, what wacky Avengers do you think the duels of Zebra and Bunt, Sunny and Live Bear, as well as Coco and that other guy had during their encounters with the powerful beast? And that other guy, by the way, is was named Tillin. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think that we can all agree it was kind of disappointing that Coco and Zebra didn't get much to do and didn't get their own arcs uh, towards the end of the series. And there was a lot of potential that, you know, that we could have seen with those combinations, especially of Zebra and Bunch, which I think between all three of us, we can all agree would have, we would have looked forward to the most because that's such a great pair. And uh, Sunny and Libera, I also think would have been a lot of fun. But it's unfortunate we didn't get to see those. I mean, we did hear about their adventures um, uh, later on. Uh, later on, when they're all meeting up, so we sort of know what they did. But I'm sure if we had actually seen the arcs, like the events would have transpired differently. I'm sure they would have actually fought the respective eight king in their area, and we'd have some cool battles from them and a little more character development from them as well. And as we saw, you know, each team got closer uh, during their adventure. So it would have been interesting to see like how the how they bonded uh, with each other. I especially especially in the case of Sunny and Library, because I think that's the most mismatched of the two of the two of the three pairings that I would have been. It interested. had the most amazing potential out of all of the yeah, three of yeah, them. Definitely. And I mean like Zebra Bunch would have been an amazing sort of kick ass punk rock adventure, but like Sunny Sunny and Library are just I mean, they're already characters that are kind of funny in isolation, but yeah, it is that sort of polar opposite thing that just makes them like ridiculous as two people to go off on an adventure. Yeah, and that just that just kind of goes back to the problem I have with a lot of the time skip in general is that it just it feels like whatever characterization or development we were going to get just unfortunately is just kind of shoved to the wayside in, in favor of just wrapping up the story, which I feel like is kind of unfortunate. And is probably gonna yeah. probably gonna be my least favorite thing overall about Toriko as a series. Honestly, it, it's the one post time skip thing I'm really willing to concede is like the the lack of those particular scenes is a blemish on the mark of the series. Like they they could have had 
so much happened. Honestly, there. Uh, like I, I would even, I would even say that I, I dislike that far more than, than, than like you know the the fact that the blue grill arc was cut so short because at least we got, I guess at least comparatively, I guess at least we got something out of that. Whereas we got pretty much nothing out of the Four Kings, really, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's definitely unfortunate. We'll never know if it was executive meddling or Shimabukuro's own decision to do that. But it is something that was uh, I would have liked to see, but I was disappointed not seeing. But uh, I still think that overall, I was satisfied with the way the ending of the series turned out. But I do think that I wish the Four Kings as a whole got their dues as a group. Yeah. And uh, so we move on to our final question from Wensley Dale Cheddar, who asks, if Kamatsu were to have an individual full course based on the ingredients he came up across during his adventures with Toriko, what would he choose? Remember, he can't pick any of the ingredients on Toriko's full course. And I actually uh, wrote out some answers for this. And so I think that Komatsu's full course would still be based around his adventures with Toriko and be uh, motivated by his sentimentality towards his adventures with his friends and relationship with Toriko. So keeping that in mind, for the appetizer, I think he would choose the Toriko burger, which is a burger Toriko made himself once that's comprised of devil serpent meat, mineral cheese, and meal tomato. I think that would be just a good encapsulation of his feelings towards Toriko and his relationship with him. For the soup, I think he would choose pear because that was an ingredient that he and Toriko prepared together. Both of them had to catch each ball of pear at the same time in order for it to ripen properly. So I think that's uh, another connection with Toriko that he's going to consider fondly with that ingredient. With a fish dish, I think he'd choose the puffer whale, because that was the first, like, dish that I think that he really felt accomplished when he was able to prepare it, because it was such a difficult ingredient to hand prepare, but he was able to do it, like, expert... He was able to manage to do it, and it was just a great accomplishment for him. So I think that in his development as a chef, he'd consider that a really important moment for him. Uh, the meat dish, I think, would be the Garara Gator, because, again, that was, like, the first, uh, that was the first creature that he went hunting with Toriko with, and, you know, that was his first adventure with Toriko, so he'd have a lot of fun memories of that creature and that dish. The main course, I think he would choose to be a nutter, because that was a dish that required so much mental anguish and so much effort on the part of everyone involved to complete, but it was such a satisfying uh, development and satisfying thing when they finally were able to complete another, a dish that was supposed to take hundreds of years to prepare, and they did it in a far shorter time. So I think that was a real accomplishment. For the salad would be the ozone herd, because that was a dish that chose Kamatsu, and it was also after procuring that dish that Toriko proposed Kamatsu to be his partner, uh, as a, to form a combo with him and be his partner, and I think, you know, Kamatsu would hold that with great memory and high regard. The dessert would be the medicinal mochi, because again, that was a dish that Kamatsu prepared all on his own, a real innovation that saved a bunch of lives, and it also earned him a spot among the top 100 IGO chefs, 
So that was an important dish for him. And finally, the drink would be the mellow cola, which was a important drink. It was an important dish that he, Torco, and Zani worked together to procure, and uh, you know, in the gourmet temple. And I think you know that also has a lot of sentimental value to him as well. So uh, yeah, that I think would be Kamatsu's full course. Torco burger as the appetizer, the soup would be pear, fish dish, puffer whale, meat dish, garagator, main course another, salad, ozone herb, dessert, medicinal mochi, and the drink would be melocola. Alright. And so I think that answers that. I pretty much agree. My comedy version of this uh, is still just the, the shipping answer that his <laughs> full course menu would be alternately Torico and Milk the Second. <laughs> and a, a, a little bit of no no on the side. Little, little bit of no, no. Yeah, it would be a, uh, it would be a very interesting doujinshi <laughs> one if you want to get out there and make some money at your uh, next comic festival in Japan, a loyal listener. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to admit it, I'd, I'd probably read it. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be down for that. I mean, it, it depends on one very important aspect of no, no that I'm not aware of. Do, do, do we do? Do I want to know what that is? Uh, well, even if we're talking from like purely romantic aspect, like what age is Nono supposed to be? Because she looks like a. Small I think she's doll. supposed to be the same. She's supposed to be the same age as Kamatsu. That would make sense because they do this a lot. It is just the weird rosy cheeks and stuff because she looks like a figurine. Honestly, for all we know, she could be like two hundred years old. We have no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that does it for our Q and A episode. Q and A questions. So thank you guys for sending those in, and uh, I hope we provided some satisfying answers for you. And keep sending us more questions and more topic suggestions for future manga mavericks and manga fights. We really appreciate them. If you have any uh, thoughts and opinions, which I'm sure there will be people who will have thoughts and opinions after listening to this, uh, whether you. Again, disagree with the way I, I I handle judging this competition, especially. <laughs> you want Maxi to come back on to be a contestant again, or really just a- any any thoughts you have on this manga fight in particular? We'd love to hear them and read them on uh, on the show. You can send those at manga mavericks at gmail dot com. We are uh, we are awaiting those if you have them. But uh, I do want to apologize again for um, royally messing up and uh, accidentally deleting some of the audio from our retrospective because it was a really good episode. And I'm I'm still sad that people aren't going to listen to it because it doesn't exist anymore. But it, it would have been an amazing five hours. Like, as long as they know that, <laughs> that's what matters. Oh, yeah. It, it literally would have been our longest episode to date. But, you know, I, I hope everybody enjoyed... Um, I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the my old podcast that I just happened to have on my laptop for such an occasion. Uh, you know, our discussion on a Hi-Fi Cluster from my old days at Anime Three Thousand. Uh, still, still a good discussion. I, I hope. Uh, I mean, Hi-Fi Cluster isn't super widely available unless you have like back issues of Shonen Jump, unfortunately. But I still hope people found that uh, that conversation interesting because that was a good one. I, I was saying to Sid before we recorded the podcast, I was genuinely surprised how good it was because, like, I thought I mostly spoke garbage when we recorded it, but it uh, <laughs> it flowed real well. I, I, it was a good time. See, I, I I have a lot of attachment to that because it's my first podcast with Maxi. Indeed. Aww. But uh, anyway, uh, I I will make sure that I I really treat this next episode with care because I. I'm not going to make that same stupid mistake again. I promise. I promise you will actually get to listen to this. Um, wait, your computer's going to catch fire the second this call ends. 
Jesus Christ, don't, don't say that. <laughs> don't jinx it, man. Come yeah, on. Yeah, don't jinx it. It wasn't jinx until you said it was jinx. Now it is. Except now it. it's not, but now it is. Maxie, I feel like every podcast I have you on is cursed. Either it doesn't get out right away or people just don't listen to it at all. Why do you feel it's been two years since I've done French Memphis Victory? <laughs> oh, okay. But I think that's going to be the end of the manga fight. I hope everybody enjoyed this. Uh, Maxie, thank you so much for coming on and recording with us again. Uh, an absolute pleasure. This, this was a great time. I may, I may have lost the fights, but hopefully I've won your audience's hearts. Well, there you go. <laughs> and uh, we, we'll, we'll, de- we'll definitely be having you on back on uh, Manga Mavericks uh, for a future episode next year, because I, I was telling Sid, I think I really do want to redo our Shonen Jump discussion at some point, because I, I still think it'll be relevant in the next yeah. couple of months. I mean, hopefully we'll have a lot of new stuff to say to keep all three of us alive, because like, it will be a different time in the magazine. It could be completely different. Gintama could be over by the time we get around to it. <laughs> it could, honestly. Actually, we could we could we could probably just wait until Gintama ends. That way, it'll be even like weirder. It would be an even more interesting discussion now that like everything from the past decade, aside from One Piece, is gone. Well, I guess Hunter Hunter yeah. too. But yeah. well, this is the thing: like the only thing that would ruin it is if Gintama ends and Hunter Hunter comes back the same week. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be gone again in ten weeks. Come on, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a poor old man. He can't manage too much at once. So you know, yeah. I mean. He has reason for taking as many breaks as he does, for sure. I'm also I'm also sad that we lost that recording because we had a really good discussion about manga authors and how they're actually people. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to redo that discussion too because I I like I'll be I'll be quite honest. Like I was hoping maybe I could at least like save that, try to go through my audio and save that, but even that didn't make it. So that was unfortunate. See, that, that, that is the one part that's, like, properly sad about it. But, like, you know, we, we all had a fun time uh, recording for five hours, so, you know, I mean, all of us got sore bums, but, you know, <laughs> had a good time. Uh, but, uh, anyway, Maxi, do you have anything you'd like to plug before we uh, before we end the show real quick? Uh, yeah, no, if you've liked anything I've said in a way of comics opinions about this episode, you can find a series I stopped doing two years ago called Friendship Effort Victory, both on iTunes and at friendshipeffortvictory.wordpress.com. Uh, I'm going to actually be doing a post-mortem text post on there at some point over this month, uh, kind of looking back at the 30-something episodes that had uh, previously been done and preparing for it's sort of relaunched that should be happening in January. It's mostly going to kind of be a convenient way of me telling people, hey, these are the episodes worth listening to. Don't listen to any other ones I've done. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the convenient part of it. And it will mean there's a reason for people to visit the site other than me just being like, listen to my old stuff. Uh, other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Maxi underscore Barnard. That's Maxi with a Y and Barnard like if you wrote Barnyard, but without the Y. So you you, just, you transpose the letter, you see. It's very clever. It's my actual name. <laughs> well, hopefully hopefully before your this, this next upcoming run of your podcast ends, we can have you on the show again to help you promote that once it's out. Let's mm-hmm. hope so. All right, but uh, yeah, go follow Maxi. I I think he's a great guy. Even if I don't always agree with his opinions, I still love talking to him. So you should uh you should definitely follow him. Sid, uh, where can the good people find you? 
You can find my art at Sid Gupta's Awesome Art Blog on Tumblr, and you can find me as Love Ramayasha on Twitter, my anime list, and Animation Revelation. I will note, though, that I am taking a uh, internet hiatus at the moment, so I probably you probably won't see me posting to, on any of those sites, but I will still respond to direct messages on Twitter. So if you really want to talk to me, you can send me a direct message and I'll answer it. But anyway, yeah, so that's it for Sid. Uh, again, even with this internet hiatus, you should still follow him if you don't already. Um, and I guess as for me, Colton, uh, usual host of the Manga Mavericks and your MC for this episode of Manga Fights, uh, you can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. That's S-N-I-P-E-R-K-I-N-G-323. Um, you know, if you want to listen to my other podcast, I, I do a couple of those. Uh, you know, if you're a fan of Gintama in particular – uh, you can listen to Life Lessons, the Gintama manga cast. It's sort of a retrospective look at uh, at the Gintama manga in particular. Uh, we started from the very beginning and are uh, slowly crawling through our way uh, our way through uh, the old English Viz Media release that is unfortunately you know it's been discontinued, but we still wanted to cover the uh, you know the past official release. Uh, you could find that that's Life Lessons, the Gintama manga cast at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. I kind of used to do a Toriko podcast. Again, I don't know what we're going to do with the show now, but uh, if you liked any of my opinions on Toriko at all, or uh, maybe you shouldn't listen to this podcast because it's super negative. Pretty much me and my friends reading Toriko as it came out weekly. But, you know, sad thing about that podcast is we probably recorded like every four to five months. Uh, uh, you can uh, you can listen to that. That's the Heavenly Kings podcast at heavenlykings.wordpress.com. Uh, last but not least, if you want to hear me talk about Detective Conan slash Case Closed, again, kind of the same thing as Life Lessons, kind of a retrospective look at the manga of uh, of Case Closed as released by Viz. That's One Podcast Prevails at onepodcastprevails.wordpress.com. Uh, but as for the podcast you're listening to right now, the Manga Mavericks slash Manga Fights podcast, if you want to find more of our podcast, you want to find our other manga fights, you can, uh, you can find them at all-comic.com. Uh, you can also follow All Comic on Facebook.com slash Alt.Comic or on Twitter.com slash AllComic underscore. Uh, but if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular and you want to get the quickest updates on the on the podcast, uh, follow us on Twitter. We have a Twitter account now, at Manga underscore Mavericks. Uh, again, that'll definitely be the quickest way to receive updates on the podcast on on its editing, on when it'll be released. Uh, so even if you don't have a Twitter, I highly suggest you get an account just so you can follow us. If you really enjoy this podcast and you really want to know when it'll be coming out. Uh, and we also have a Tumblr. If you're a frequent user of that site as well, that's uh, mangamavericks.tumblr.com. I believe uh, Sid is running that. So if you, uh, if you want updates on the podcast, you can probably go there as well. And, uh, you know, like we said earlier, please email us anything about manga, uh, manga mavericks or, or any or this manga fight at mangamavericks at gmail.com but the most important thing guys is that you subscribe rate and review us on itunes and uh that's gonna be about it hope everybody enjoyed this edition of manga fights as presented by manga mavericks on allcomic.com uh please join us next time for our next episode of manga mavericks episode 22 as we uh round off the year so uh well i guess we'll see you guys then so bye sayonara yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs>